then I re-grab it and go thump, 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 thump. Anyway, max speed should be higher. All right, as usual, we should start with follow-up. And uh, as usual, we have APFS-related follow-up. How do we have this every week? <laughs> uh, I swear to you, I'm not like intentionally trying to make this a streak. It's just it's just ha- happening naturally. Is this like the yeah. Bell Lobby, like influencing us? Like, what is going on here? Who knows? Know. But Li- Liberty RPF from Twitter writes: APFS doesn't support compression yet. What if on macOS you've run something like clusters to compress everything at the file system level? What do we make of that, John? I hadn't thought of this before. So there are a couple things about this. This was a tweet, right? I'm I also most agree my recollection is that abfs does not support compression but i would not like am i sure about that maybe not maybe like it actually does have built-in support for the hfs plus compression and they just never say anything i don't know but anyway assuming it doesn't support compression which is my my recollection at this point uh it is true that on max um even if you never run any third-party utility a whole bunch of the files that like come with the operating system and stuff are compressed on disk, right? And then H- HOS Plus is this native compression feature they added many releases ago. And it just when it gets read from the file system, it gets re- reinflated to its normal size and it's all transparent to, you know, the rest of the operating system. It's just, it just takes up less room on disk, right? So the APFS conversion thing, on iOS anyway, is like leave all the data exactly where it is and just make new pointers to it and blah, blah, blah. Don't like move anything around. I have no idea if iOS uses the HFS Plus compression feature, um, but I know Macs do. And also on the Mac, there are third-party utilities that can wander over the rest of your file system and compress stuff. Or tell HFS Plus basically, oh, this file right here, make it be compressed on disk. And you know, you could write your own little programs to do this, right? Um, so on a Mac, it is very likely, uh, in fact, almost certain that uh, you know one or more files are compressed now. If a Mac is going to have the same sort of in-place conversion to ABFS that iOS devices have, you have kind of a weird situation where it can't just leave all the data exactly where it is because if ABFS can't decompress stuff, it can't just leave that data as compressed because it'll be scrambled garbage uh, after, you know, ABFS points to it and said, here's the file data, and you go to read it and it's compressed garbage. ABFS has to either know how to decompress that on the fly, just like HFS+, Plus, which seems to me to be the easiest solution because then you don't have to worry about all these issues that I'm about to explain, or you have to expand those files to their uncompressed version, which means you need to find space for them, which means you actually have to copy the data someplace else and shuffle things around, and now it becomes suddenly a way more dangerous operation than it was before. And in the worst-case scenario, someone's got tons of stuff compressed uh, with HFS plus compression, and their disk is almost full, and there's literally no room on the disk to expand everything, because if you were to expand everything, it would exceed the capacity of the disk. So... Um, I'm hoping that I'm either just misremembering or APFS has support for HFS plus, uh, compression just transparently included and it just hasn't been brought up or they told me and I forgot or whatever, because that would certainly simplify things. But if that's not the case, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the, with the Mac rollout of APFS. And I wish maybe someone in the chat room knows, I wish, uh, I knew if iOS also uses HFS plus compression. I would imagine it would too, because I don't, I don't see any reason it, it wouldn't do it, or maybe battery life. I don't know. Um, the chat room says it, it the iOS does have support. Support, sure, but like, do all the OS files compress like they are on? Not all of them, but I don't know. Uh, is if you get a phone from a store and just take it out of the box, are a bunch of the files on the formerly HFS Plus disk uh, compressed? If you had done this like a year ago, I don't know. Anyway, it will be an adventure. I'm still waiting for the Mac rollout of APFS. 
because converting on all our phones was boring except for the apps that broke. Fair enough. All right, moving on. Uh, we got some very interesting feedback via David Carlton about WWDC lunches, which is uh, the topic that keeps on giving. <laughs> I love um, this so much. <laughs> he linked us. I actually love it as well. He linked <laughs> us to the GDC Boss Lady blog by Megan Scavino, Scavio. Excuse me. So she writes with regard to the Game Developers Conference. The other recognizable change this year is lunch. We reduced the price of conference passes by the cost of lunch. That box lunch that you all know and love and wish you could consume five days a week all year round is $40 a day, she writes. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to stop choking on your Doritos. Ready? Yes. $40 a day for sandwich, chips, apple cookie, and water soda. I could not make this stuff up even if I wanted to. We decided to give the attendees a choice this year. Spend as much as you'd like by buying from one of the many on-site concessions or nearby food repositories or pre-order and pay for the $40 a day meal. It is now your decision. I trust you will make the right one. And the the, the catch here, which I didn't explain, is that the, that GDC apparently at the time of this writing was happening at Moscone. So hold Holy smokes, $40 a day for that disaster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the, the, story, the story with conferences and things like this is what any kind of, any kind of like exhibitor of conferences, or if you're going to like set up a booth at a conference, you've probably gone through a lot of this crap. Basically, doing anything inside of a big conference hall usually involves dealing with ridiculous uh, exclusive contractors and exclusive vendors and possible union politics and what you think these things should cost, they cost way, way, way more than that. So this is like, you know, food service exclusive provider for Moscone provides these lunches, and Apple pretty much has to pay whatever their price is because they aren't allowed to bring in food from anybody else into Moscone. It's that, it's that kind of arrangement usually. Uh, it's like, you know, if you're setting up a booth for like a small trade show and you need like a Surge strip, you can't bring your own Surge strip. You have to use their Surge strip installed by one of their licensed people to install it, and it's going to cost you $400. Like it's it's that kind of thing usually at these at these. Uh, large venues so i'm not really surprised to hear this it's it's sad and if you ever book one of these things it probably makes you angry uh but it's not surprising even when you're not in a conference center like at work we have you know food they bring in they try to bring in like healthy food so you have like apples and bananas and stuff and uh i when they first started doing this i heard someone throwing around the idea that each one of those apples was two bucks which you know doesn't seem like too much, but on the other hand, you just look at the giant pile of apples, you're like, oh, that adds up. And that's this is in a non-conference center environment. So in general, but just getting uh, large amounts of stuff in a place where it normally wouldn't appear, whether it's apples in offices or box lunches in a convention center costs a lot. And then, yeah, they, all the exclusive contracts and the unions makes it really expensive. And remember this, this $40 thing, this post was from many years ago, right? It was like seven years ago. Yeah. So it's probably like 100 bucks now. So if you if you do this math, forty dollars a day times five days of WWDC. Actually, I guess it's four because they don't serve. Do they serve lunch on Fridays? Yes, I never they do. Stay late enough. Yeah. Oh, they okay. Do. So five days times five thousand attendees, which doesn't account for all the Apple people. That is a million dollars on these godforsaken <laughs> lunches. Yeah, that's the thing. Holy it's like cow. when you have these kind of like you know special special venues with special deals with everybody and restrictions on you doing anything else. I mean, they can charge kind of whatever they want. By the way, see also weddings and hospitals. Well, it's bad. All right, so I think that's it for follow up. Surprisingly, this this is a miracle. I don't know what to make of this. Wow. I mean, I, I I have some alternative topics we could put in follow up. Copyright twenty eleven, John Syracuse. But I, I think you actually did pretty well defending Plex on Connected. 
Yeah, well, yeah, that was uh, that was intended for follow up here, but uh, I actually did a guest spot on Connected uh, earlier this week, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, if you don't listen to Connected, uh, our dear friend of the show, Federico Vitici, slandered the Plex name, and uh, in in not the latest episode, but the prior one, and this could not stand. And as such, um, I was planning on a probably fifteen or twenty minute follow up section, or really a follow out copyright twenty. 15 or 16 uh jason snell uh built upon the work uh copyright 2010 john syracuse anyway uh, i was yeah it was a derivative work uh <laughs> i i had planned on doing some follow-out with regard to connected um uh, and their thoughts on plex but i was asked uh probably out of desperation because mike was not in town i was asked to guest on the beginning of the latest episode which i will put a link in the show notes like i said and it's at the very beginning of the episode and i kind of talk about what makes plex awesome and why it's not nearly as hard to use as you would expect so if you're at all interested in that, I, I do encourage you to check it out. Um, but yeah, because of that, our follow-up in this show, including follow-out, is pretty much done. I will say, since we're talking about Plex anyway... Uh, I will oh, here we one, go. This is how we always get there. One quick thing <laughs> that, that, I, that I don't think you guys really covered uh, enough that, that I wanted to point out, because I, I was also a Plex skeptic uh, for years. Casey would always b- bug me about how great it was and why don't I do this and tell me all the great things that, well, you know, if you had Plex, you wouldn't have this problem right now. <laughs> um, and and one of the, the great values to me of Plex in, in a world where we can stream pretty much everything we want all the time, and that is when you have children and the children really want to watch a specific thing when, you know, at a certain time that they do that every day. And if, you, if this thing is not available for kids, it's going to cause problems for the parents. And there's lots of times in life to teach your kids they can't always get what they want. Uh, but <laughs> a lot of times you don't want to have that discussion right now. You just want to give the kid the, the TV show they wanted to watch uh, so you can go wash the dishes or something. Uh, and sometimes internet connections go down. Sometimes iTunes freaks out and won't authorize anything. Sometimes things break in the online world. And it is really, really nice when that happens, which is rare, but when that does happen, it's really nice to have Plex running in your home and everything you need to play the media you want to play is on your local network and DRM free. And that means there is no reliance on your Fios being out or not out. There's no reliance on the Apple DRM servers authorizing you to watch what you paid for or not. It's just playing a file off a network share and it just works. And that's really, really nice when you need it. And if you have friends which also have Plex servers and accounts and whatnot, you can stream from each other. So um, I have been amassing a collection of Daniel Tiger and Paw Patrol and things of that nature. And so these are probably beneath Adam at this point. But hypothetically, um, if if Adam wanted Paw Patrol and, and it isn't on Netflix or iTunes is down or whatever the case may be, Marco can hop on Plex tell Plex, don't look at my local server, look at Casey's server, and and he can stream that directly from me to him, which is really awesome. And so once you've built up a kind of quote-unquote network of, you know, a few friends that all have media, it's it's actually kind of your own personal Netflix. It's, it's really phenomenal and really, really cool. 
We are sponsored this week by Fracture. Go to FractureMe.com slash podcast and select ATP there so they know you came from here. Fracture is a photo decor company. They are out to rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. And here's how they do that. They print beautiful photo prints in vivid color onto sheets of glass that hang on your wall or stand up on your desk. It is really just they, they print your photos on these nice thin panes of glass and you just hang that on your wall and the photos go edge to edge there's no frame there's no frame needed even the photos are their own standalone objects that go edge to edge with the print and it looks so clean and modern to just have the photo across the whole expanse they make great gifts as well you know mother's day is right around the corner you can get you know suppose you have kids and you want to get pictures you know of your kids for your mother or for maybe their grandmother it's a great gift idea for all sorts of occasions, friends, family. And these things just look great around the house. We have them all over our house, and we get compliments every time somebody comes over and say, hey, what's that? Is that a fracture if they've heard of it? Like, it, they just look fantastic, these great photo prints. And they really want you to get those photos out of the social media feeds that they kind of get stuck in. Because if you, you, know, you post a great picture to Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and then in eight hours, it's gone. You'll like never see it again because it's off the end of the timeline. Get those best photos out. Get them printed by Fracture. It looks great. They look great either in your house or in somebody else's as a gift. Go to FractureMe.com slash podcast, and then there's a little picker to say what show you came from. Make sure you pick ATP on that list so that we get credit and they know that you came from here. And I highly recommend you check out Fracture. Great photo prints directly on glass. Great prices and great gifts, too. FractureMe.com slash podcast. Thank you very much to Fracture for sponsoring our show. We also have some show news. We do. We very much do. This is super exciting. I'm, I'm very pumped about this. Tell us what's going on, Marco. All right. So uh, we are doing a live show at WWDC. So on Monday, June 5th in WWDC week, uh, we are doing a live show at AltConf. AltConf is this uh, community-run conference that happens like across or down the street from uh, WBDC. It's happened for what three or four years now, at least, right? It's been a, been kind of a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way AltConf works is um, the conference is totally you know community-run, and it's you it's free for the most part. You can you can pay optionally if you want to to get like priority in line. Uh, but otherwise, it's free, and there's you know great diverse talks, and it's really a great event for the community. Anyway, uh, we wanted to do a live show this year, and they had this great thing where they invite they invite the community to come, you know, use their venue and bring talks and content to AltConf. We decided to take them up on that offer, and we we contacted them this past week and arranged it pretty pretty quickly actually, and so. Uh, we are doing a live show in AltConf, and it's going to be separately ticketed, um, mostly for the purposes of just capacity management. Uh, but the tickets are just five bucks. It's it basically just like to make sure that people actually are serious when they book them, so we know how many people are coming, so we know how big to make the room. Um, and then we're we're working on maybe we can donate that money to something useful. Uh, and then. The show is going to be Monday from 5 to 7 p.m. So the idea here is to be after the WBDC State of the Union address, which usually runs until 4 or 4.30. Uh, but before anybody's dinner plans or um, Jim Dalrymple's beard bash or other things that might be happening on Monday night. So 5 to 7 p.m. live show, uh, WBDC Monday, June 5th at AltConf. Uh, go to, uh, is it altconf.com? 
it is altconf.com. Okay, just checking. And uh, yeah, so we we look forward to it. Um, it's gonna be you know it's it's not gonna be like any kind of outrageous thing where we have like Tim Cook on or anything. I, I don't. I mean, we could try, but I don't think we'll get him. Uh, just just a hunch. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, but I'm looking forward to it. We're gonna just, you know, we're gonna basically just do this in front of a live audience of between 100 and a thousand people, depending on how many people respond to the room. Um, I I do expect to stream it live. Um, when you say that, you mean audio only? By is your expectation? Yes, audio. I don't think we have any kind of video uh, setup. I, I do have the audio setup uh, to stream it live if internet connectivity holds out and that's a huge if at conference so i don't want to guarantee it um, because basically i will be trying to get uh some kind of connection out of a very very full room in a venue i've never been in in a city i've never been in uh so it's it's hard to predict whether or not i will be able to maintain an audio live stream but i'll do my best otherwise we look forward to it so uh yeah if, if you want to come go book a ticket now uh we will put the link in the show notes uh and so yeah thanks to altcon for working with us on this because you know what, what we wanted to really was just like we we wanted to do a live show but we didn't want to go through like the massive ordeal and and hassle and risk of booking a whole venue ourselves it's a ton of work to do that and i highly respect the podcasts that do that we did not have that in us <laughs> and uh, we could barely get t-shirts for sale <laughs> so uh so we we uh, found a great arrangement with altconf that worked out well for all of us and uh, we hope to see you there yep it's uh it's super exciting um most of the three of us are very excited about it. So uh, please, if you are interested at all in doing this and you think you will be there, please go ahead and uh, buy, uh, get yourself a ticket, buy a ticket, and uh, do it now just like the T-shirts. To be clear, the uh, live show that we're doing, like it's a live show. You can come see us live. We're going to try to stream it. And uh, the main thing that will probably prevent streaming is the fact that if the stream craps out, Marco can't fix it because he's on stage. So, oh, well. Um, but we're also releasing it as a regular episode. This will be our regular WWDC episode. Right, so yeah, like, good point. In, mo- in most years, like we just record this in Marco's hotel room or whatever. You know, we're releasing this episode, so just don't feel like, oh, I'm not going to WWDC. I'll miss this one. You won't miss it. It will be that week's episode. You just won't get to see it or hear it live. That's it. Excellent point. So the news this week, uh, we've we, it's been a little while since we've spoken to each other. I've missed you too deeply. But uh, one thing I might be missing soon is Touch ID in the front of my phone. Because there have been some very interesting uh, hardware specs and photographs that have link- that have leaked that indicate the Touch ID sensor in the supposed iPhone 8 may be on the back of the phone under the Apple logo. And the internet is not happy about this from what I can tell. Um, I don't. I don't really know what I make of it yet. I've never really used a phone with the uh, fingerprint sensor on the back. However, uh, pretty much anyone that I know that has used an Android phone with any regularity has said that eh, it's fine. In fact, some of them have even said they prefer it, uh, even having had used both. So um, I'm kind of whatever about this. It's not something I feel like I want, but I think I can roll with it just fine. I, You know, I feel the same way about this as I did about the lock button moving from the top to the right-hand side of the phone. Not really something I want. I'm sure I'll get over it, and that's exactly how it turned out. Not really something I wanted. I got over it pretty quick. So, Marco, how do you feel about this? I'm kind of the same way. I've never used a phone with it on the back, and I think I'd get used to it. It would be fine, but I think on the front would be better. And I think it's more interesting that 
we don't seem to have a clear picture yet and that maybe Apple doesn't seem to have a clear picture yet. That is more interesting because it's getting pretty late in the year for these kind of decisions to not be made yet. I got a point of clarification that we needed on this because in the beginning, Casey said the the Touch ID sensor is on the back under the Apple logo, and that actually can be interpreted multiple ways. One oh, of which is a yes. way that has been suggested. So what uh, what he was referring to is that it, you'll look at the the link we'll put in the show notes to Nine to Five Mac or whatever that shows a picture of the supposed part leak. So if you look at the back of an iPhone, the, there's an Apple logo on the back, but the Apple logo is towards the top of the phone, right? When he says under the Apple logo, he means go down about an inch from that and pretty much dead center in the back of the phone below the apple logo like lower down on the phone than the apple logo there's a circular opening and that's where touch id would be a lot of people suggested hey if you're going to put something on the back of the phone why don't you make the apple logo also the touch id sensor obviously the the problems there are that it's not really shaped like a circle and you know it might be hard to get a sensor that kind of fills that area and still looks nice and blah 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 um, and maybe it's positioned wrong. Maybe you actually do want it more towards the center instead of high up. And so there's all sorts of aesthetic and functional decisions that may make them not want to put the Touch ID sensor literally in the Apple logo. But the parts leaks show there's a cutout for the Apple logo, and then an inch lower, there's a circular cutout for the Touch ID sensor. So what are your thoughts on this, John? Well, I mean, these these parts leaks, we're getting into parts leak season, um, <laughs> and I have a hard time dismissing these as complete fakes or ridiculous things because they're starting to look starting to look pretty real to me at the very least a real thing that was made by somebody for some purpose probably apple um some people in the chat room are saying there's no way apple will do this they'll never do this because it's not an apple thing to do i totally disagree with that apple would 100 percent do this whether they are going to do it or not I guess, you know, every, as every week advances, these things, these rumors will be the cement or they will just go away and we won't see it anymore. Um, but remember, we're, this is the phone we're talking about that's supposed to get rid of the chin and forehead, more or less, and make the screen go from top to bottom, edge to edge, much more so than it does now, leaving no room for even the completely immobile Touch ID button on the iPhone 7. There won't even be room for a non-moving button. It'll just be screen everywhere. And so, you know, the, the early rumors were like, oh, it'll be screen everywhere. And in fact... The home button and touch ID will also be in the screen. You can kind of see how they could put the home button in the screen because we already have a home button that doesn't move, right? And there's a little indentation for it, which is better than being no indentation. And that's another sort of ergonomic issue of like, how do I find the home button if there's no little indentation for my thumb to go in? I just just feel for the middle of the phone or maybe the whole bottom of the phone is like a home button and I just force press somewhere near the bottom and it takes me home, whatever. But the touch ID sensor, um, the, the... the rumors were supposedly like, oh, it turned out to be harder than they thought to get a Touch ID sensor inside a screen because the screen has lights that come out of it and the Touch ID sensor, you know, it's like sensor and screen are not the same things. How do they combine them in a way that the Touch ID sensor works? And all these recent part leaks are part of the narrative. They're like, oh, they couldn't get that to work this year. So instead, they're putting it on the back. Um, and, you know, people have Android phones with Touch ID sensors on the back and they're saying like, it's fine. It's whatever. Like, obviously, if you put your phone down on the table, now you can't unlock it um, unless you put it face down. But then when you unlock it, it's no good because you can't see the screen anyway. Right. You know, so that's the one uh, disadvantage that people talk about with it being on the back. But otherwise, like ergonomically speaking, it's probably better, easier to hit the touch ID on the back than it is to hit touch ID. That's at the very, very edge of your phone. You know what I mean? Like it's like. If you had to pick where is the best place to put a fingerprint sensor on on a on a you know 
a featureless rectangle, you wouldn't say, let me put it on the very, very bottom edge because you kind of got to shimmy your hand down and you kind of pinch it from the edge. You could certainly get a more secure grip if the touch of the sensor were somewhere in the middle, right? My main reservation about the thing being in the middle is since I'm someone who's had a case on all of my iOS devices, putting something that you can't put a case over on the back uh, is somewhat of a, a, a problem slash disappointment for me. I'm not one of those people that has ever had a case that has like a circle cut out so you can see the Apple logo. I found those cases absurd and just comical and sad. Um, I don't need a cutout to show the world my Apple logo. And in fact, if, I, if you get an Apple case, they have their own Apple logo on the case as a little indentation. <laughs> People will still know it's an iPhone. It'll be fine, I swear. Um, but not just for those sort of aesthetic and like uh, image reasons, I don't like the cutout. But mainly I don't like the cutout because the cutout that will inevitably have to be there on any case for this for, a, for an Apple iPhone with the Touch ID sensor on the back is that that basically becomes... Uh, a lint collecting belly button for your phone like it's another place for <laughs> grime grime and crap to get inside there because you're going to be sticking your grimy fingers in there constantly to unlock your phone and any grime that's on there is just gonna get wedged into this little thing it will literally be a grimy linty belly button for your phone um that's not good it doesn't look good it doesn't feel good it makes the touch id sensor farther away from you because now you got to dig your finger into the little belly button to find the touch id sensor the thicker your case is the worse that's going to be think of battery cases how the hell are you going to get a battery case it's going to be a super duper any belly button where you got to poke your <laughs> finger up there and it's going to be a mess um if you don't use cases on your phone whatever like it's then there's no big deal right this these are all nine issues but i do use cases and i don't want to stick my finger into a little hole in the case and and you know fiddle around on a linty belly button so uh, that's mostly making me either a hope this is not true or b hope that by the time you know because i have a seven i'm not going to get this phone i'm going to wait another year and get the one after that hopefully by the next phone they will have sorted out whatever issues with touch id in the on the front and you know i don't want to worry about this i think having it on the back is worse enough than having it on the front that if we were forced to to like if if there was no way to keep it on the front while having the screen go edge to edge like if there was no way to put it under the screen i would rather just still have the chin like you know make the bezel smaller you don't need to make the screen two to one you can keep it being 16 by nine and not do like the samsung like you know 18 by nine or two to one thing because uh, no one really needs it to be taller necessarily um like i just keep the keep the chin like i don't think we need no one's really asking to have that go away if the cost is going to be losing touch id to the back well johnny i like symmetry i mean i know you've got a chin on the imac and no forehead right but on the phone though i feel like that silhouette is so iconic you know of the like even like apple's little outline graphics that they give you for iphone that you're like you're not allowed to use in your app or they'll mm-hmm. they won't let it in the app store that it's basically a rounded rectangle with a little rectangle exactly dead center in the middle and that's basically uh you know hieroglyphics for iphone or for smartphone at this point for apple to come out with uh an iphone with asymmetrical margins like a chin but very little forehead because they're trying to pull on the edges like you can pull on the sides a little bit and 
and shave a few millimeters, right? Oh, edge-to-edge screen, especially if they do like a rounded screen on the edges, like so many of the, uh, you know, past uh, Android phones. Oh, it's a lot. Like it, when you see them side by side in people's review videos, like the the iPhone design, the side bezels really stick out compared to these newer, like you know, bezel-less ones like the S8. Like they, mm-hmm. yeah, but but it's only a few millimeters here. It's not like you're getting back like a full inch if you took off the chin and forehead. But that matters. Like I'm, I'm saying, like if you just if you keep most of the chin you don't even need to keep the whole chin just keep enough of it for a touch id sensor to be there (laughs) there's like two millimeters on top and bottom of of the touch id sensor go look at your phone right now there's not a lot of room above and below i'm holding it right now you there is some room about as much room as the side bezels and also uh does it need to be that big we don't know maybe they can get away with a smaller one I, i think it needs to be that big well but regardless like i'm saying like you know this is all about trade-offs right like we this has been like a theme of our show is like is apple making the right trade-offs in its physical designs of things and and i think the the trade-off here is like touch id on the back is not that great uh and if if you keep it on the front basically like you know it solves a lot of problems if you can't get it under the screen which i mean i don't know a lot about screen technology but getting it under the screen without having it be like a visible different spot on the screen when the screen's showing an image sounds impossible like that sounds really really hard Mm -hmm. that's not impossible i I, I feel like you know i feel like the rumor wouldn't have been around so long if it was literally impossible i think the tech is sort of kind of there to to sort of kind of pull this off to some degree but but Uh, otherwise it would never be discussed but you think that like that there's a way to put something like to put some kind of like optical you know readings or scanning sensor in a screen that also is showing pixels such that if you showed like a solid color rectangle on the screen that you wouldn't see the outline of that touch id is an optical is it i don't know Oh, I don't know. If I knew how Touch ID worked, I could have a more informed opinion about this. But, uh, but I don't. But anyway, like I would, the rumor, the rumor has been around so long, and I haven't seen a single story that say, "You dummy, that's impossible. Stop talking about this." Which leads me to believe that it is possible. It's just a question of how much worse is the sensor. You know how 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 less clear an image uh, or you know a sense of your fingerprints does it get? Um, so I. I've, I feel like it's 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 possible, uh, if not now, then eventually. But, you know, if not this year, then whatever. But but getting back to the idea of leaving the chin and getting rid of the forehead, like, you know, you can pull in the margins all you want. Bottom line is, if the margin above is not the width of the margin below, you've got an asymmetrical phone, and that's weird to me. Now, they did make the fat nano, so never say never, right? <laughs> Apple, Apple has been known to make some pretty awkward-looking iOS. Uh, that wasn't an iOS device. Awkward-looking handheld battery-powered devices. So who knows what they'll do, um, but I first I personally think that would be an ugly iPhone. It would be the equivalent of the Fat Nano, even more so than the thing on the back. And so I'm I think it is more likely that the front will be nice and symmetrical, and the, the Touch ID sensor will be on the back if they really couldn't get it any other way. Or like the final thing is, it's got top and bottom margins that are both equal. They're both slightly smaller than they were before. They pulled in the sides a little bit and you know there's your phone people would still like that it would be a new form factor it's not the, like the iphone 7 form factor again it is a new phone especially if it has you know steel you know that steel shiny chrome edge thing sort of reminiscent of the of the first iphone and the stainless steel back and you know all, all the other things you know, it would be a new form factor people would accept it as a new phone it just wouldn't be like oh i thought this one was only going to have screen on the front but instead it's still got a chin in a forehead but oh well yeah i agree i i i Certainly would not complain if Touch ID was pretty much exactly the way it was. It's just the only difference was that the bezels were slightly smaller. 
but um, we'll we'll see. I, I I'm pretty much nonplussed by this, regardless. Whatever ends up happening happens, and that's fine. Oh, by the way, I think this is a good time to to revisit uh, while we're on the topic of uh, the buttons on our phones and everything uh, to take another pass at uh, each of us saying what how we feel. Uh, about the non-moving uh, iPhone 7 home button after using it for, what, a year now or whatever it's been? Mm-hmm. Because I had occasion to use my wife's phone recently, and she's got a 6S, and that button moves. Uh, and <laughs> they, I start off as like, oh, the buttons, it's weird. You get used to it. It's not quite the same or whatever. And now I'm, I'm at the point where when I use a, 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 an iOS device where the button actually moves, it feels like junk, and I can't handle it, and I, I am, like, <laughs> fully converted. Yep. I'm yep. fully converted to the non-moving button, which does not feel like the old button. Like, it's not like, oh, it's now it has fooled me. It doesn't. But all I'm saying is the way it feels now is the way I, ex- I expect my phone to feel. The little wiggly shake, even how it works when my phone is sitting on a tabletop, like all of those little haptic movements and whatever, my hands have just accepted that, that that's how your phone feels. And when I use phones that don't feel that way, and when a thing like presses in on them, it feels junky and crappy to me. So I am a, a total convert to this, which makes me gives me some hope that i will eventually be a convert to and you know an in-screen completely smooth no border thing i could be wrong it could be that i need the little circle to feel with my thumb right no matter where it is which is another question by the way if they put touch id in the back is it a little crater on the back or is it totally featureless and if it is a crater that's kind of weird because you'd have the apple logo and then a little then a little zit crater belly button blow it anyway um <laughs> i i'm here to say that i feel like i have unbeknownst to me completely converted to not just tolerating the non-moving home button, but to, to saying, I like the non-moving home button better than all of the moving home buttons I've ever used. I could not possibly agree with you more. The only time I dislike the non-moving home button, the static home button, is when I try to unlock my phone when it's resting on a table because whatever magic the haptic, taptic, whatever feedback does in order to make you feel like you've clicked a button, it's either completely muted to the point of, figuratively speaking, silence, or just very, very, very soft and, and almost muted. And that annoys me, but in hand, I have no problem with it. And I believe I'm on the softest setting. I'm, I'm going to have to come back to it because I don't remember offhand, but I think I'm on the softest uh, feedback setting too. Yeah, like I mentioned the table thing. It may be because I have a case. Like It does feel different when it's on the table, but I have now come to like that feeling also better than pressing like the home button on my wife's success that's also sitting on the table. It is totally weird, and it is different than when it's in your hand, but I like it better because it fe- it's just what I'm used to, right? And when I press it and it moves in, it feels like I'm breaking the phone and opening up this weird gap, and like it yep. feels so clunky or whatever. And I, I, I have been in the situation... And maybe it is the case that it makes the difference that like gives it that extra cushion or margin for the haptics to do something like where you press it and and like imagine if you pressed it and the haptics didn't go off at all. Right. That would feel broken on, on the, the seven. Right. And so sometimes I feel like if you're if you're on a very flat table, a very hard flat table with no case and you try to do it, maybe somehow the haptics have no had nothing to move or vibrate. And that feels a little bit more broken than it does with the case. So it could be the case is helping me like my home button uh, more. But Either way, um, I'm I'm willing to uh, you know I I like it I like it better even in that scenario. So do you or what setting are you on in terms of the? I'm feedback? just going to go look that up. Where is that in general? It's in uh, general. It's home button. Everything's in general. That's that's why it's aptly named. It should just yeah. be called settings. You go to settings and you go to settings. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you guys. I totally agree. I the very first probably three or four days I hated it. 
I thought this is a huge step backwards. I, I said as much here. Um, and somehow between now and then, I've turned into not only liking it, but like John, uh, liking it more than the old buttons. <laughs> and the old buttons now feel weird to me. That has not happened with Force Touch trackpads uh, <laughs> or the new keyboards on the MacBooks, but that has definitely happened with the Force Touch home button on the phones. And I also w- would go a little bit further and say um, one of the great things about the iPhone 7 is that new Taptic Engine second generation that that has enabled because it's like a much more precise Taptic Engine that can do a lot more stuff and has like a whole sequencer for for the uh, the things it does and so that that has enabled all the little tiny haptic feedback things throughout the interface and now that I am accustomed to that in so many system standard apps that use standard controls and standard haptics and everything. When I go back, when I use like an iPad that doesn't have the Tapic Engine and nothing gives me those, those little taps with everything, it feels like something's broken. It feels like, what's wrong? What, is this some kind of primitive piece of glass? Like, it, it makes a huge difference. So I also am, am a, a very big fan of haptics and uh, especially the, you know, the new Tapic Engine. And I look forward to, you know, seeing them added to more apps, including probably my own once I get around to it. Speaking of haptic feedback and things that feel broken, Marco, this is my, my brief uh, complaint about overcast things. I have really long lists, really long playlists, and when I try to drag something from way, way down at the bottom to way, way up at the top, the maximum scroll speed as the little haptics fire off is way too slow, and I just sit there holding it and going, dum, 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 And then, of course, overcast refreshes the list, and it yanks the thing that I was holding in my hand out of my hand and drops it into the list wherever it was, and then I re-grab it and go, dum, 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 dum. Anyway, max speed should be higher. All right. The second thing is my fault. The first thing isn't. Uh, the first, like, this is just the the standard behavior of UI table view. Uh, and I know, but I believe in you. I believe you can you can change the default behavior and make it make it go faster. <laughs> Given what you've done, no, the, to- if I have to do anything else to UI table view, I'm just going to move to UI <laughs> yes. collection view. Like, it, which some people speculate that maybe collection views will replace table views. Yeah, and- I, saw, I saw that that article. That table view is for suckers. It's all collection view now. Well, there's a bunch of things that, that, that table views still do that collection views don't or that you'd have to write it yourself. But I think I've probably crossed the threshold after which, like, I've done so much work to hack table views that maybe doing it in a collection view would have been less work after all. So probably next time I redesign this interface, if that ever happens, I'm not looking forward to that. But if that ever happens, uh, I will probably do collection view instead. Yeah, go, go for a higher max scroll speed. It can be, you can ratchet up. It can be like slow in the beginning <laughs> and then you're holding and then it goes faster. In fact, you know, like the same way that flick scrolling kind of does where you, you can you can get it up to speed because really long lists, like there's just no recourse. It's just... And- well, there there is a shortcut. Uh, if you if you start playing an item near the top and on the items near the bottom that you're trying to move all the way up, play next, play next, play next, play next. That'll move them all immediately. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't even think all right, about that. that was just an aside. It's uh, funny you bring up the, the taptic, haptic, whatever feedback, because uh, as an aside the other day, I had a few minutes to kill at work. And uh, the, the app that I work on, we have a scenario where there's like a, a bunch of cards across the bottom of the screen and you can you can slide the cards left and right. And, uh, you know, some will come from off screen onto screen and then go back off screen again. And this is like the perfect moment to use that feedback and that that tap, tap, tap as you're scrolling through the cards and they're coming on and off screen. Um, and I tried to get get it to work just right. And. I couldn't get the math right such that when like the card was at the midway point off screen, it would fire at the exact right moment. It was very wonky. It was probably my fault, but I hope to at some point go back to, to, to finish that up because it, 
it really does work phenomenally well when you get it right, but getting it right is kind of tough. So, uh, yeah, I am full support of third-party uh, app developers putting that everywhere they can in their apps because it's super cool. The only bad thing about haptics right now uh, is that we really don't have a lot of control over them. Like the no, the options that we have are are really coarse, and from what I understand, the way it's implemented is basically a sound synthesizer. Uh, you know, treating treating the tapping engine like a big low frequency speaker, and so apps in theory could have much more creativity and options over the the feeling and even possibly like direction if that's a thing you know like side by side directions of the haptics um though that's not yet exposed in the API but maybe in iOS 11 or the future maybe they will because I would love to do like some custom stuff there that just isn't possible right now yeah completely agree with you all right anything else on these uh, iPhone 8 rumors I think at this point there's there's so many crazy rumors we 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 know so little it's hard to comment intelligently on much of it. Well, has that ever stopped us before? And by the way, the nine to five Mac uh, article that we're going to link that has like the parts leak thing. The parts leak was like a drawing, which is you know always the best part leaks with like measurements on them and stuff like that. It's good. I actually took a screenshot of that thing because th- those are so easy to verify. Like they're down to the you know thousands of a millimeter. We can verify those when the real phone comes out. If it's exactly those dimensions down to the thousands of the millimeter, that was probably a legit leak. If they're not, then that was just totally made up uh, stuff. But anyway, the 95 Mac article has a picture of like, oh, here's a part. It looks just like that schematic. It's just a rendering of the schematic. Like the schematic is the supposed leak, not this thing that looks like metal and the thing. So don't, don't be fooled by thinking someone found a metal thing and took a fuzzy picture of it. It's just a rendering. Uh, also, real-time follow-up, uh, the Touch ID hardware as it exists today is capacitive, which I did not realize. I thought it was uh, optical. Yeah, so I think it's just like a really, really high-density capacitive layer, like like higher higher precision than the uh, than the, 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 the touch sensor on the whole multi-touch screen, I, I assume, right? Yeah, I mean, like it, it, the whole thing of like the capacitive stuff, the capacitive layering, there's two, two aspects. There's one is the layering thing where... You can make screens out of a series of layers, and one layer is the part that does the capacitive sensing. Another layer is is the part that has the you know the the color elements and the light up bits, and you know, it, especially if it's an OLED screen. But isn't this the the new iPhone supposed to be all OLED and everything? So yeah, then you, you you reduce the number of layers because you don't have a light emitting layer and a filter layer. You the, the little pixels themselves emit light. But either way, you have to have a bunch of things that emit light, and then in between the light emitting things. You need the sensing things. And the light emitting things don't have to fill the whole area because there's, you know, light bloom and everything. So the actual light emitting areas can actually be very small and have mostly empty space between them. It's just a question of trying to, like, either weave that together or layer it over each other such that, you know, the 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 capacitive thing is has this fine mesh that's put over the light up things but you don't notice the mesh because it's super fine or you put it below the light up things like, again, I'm, I'm just making up random words for tech here, but, like, it seems to me <laughs> that it should be possible to make a layer cake that works in some way the only question is how much worse does it work than the existing touch id which is which still has like you know, whatever this is a layer of sapphire or glass over the capacitive sensor right so it's still there's still some distance there's just no light being emitted from it um and especially if they just darken that area of the screen when you hold your finger on it when it's expecting touch id or whatever like there are ways around a lot of the limitations that make me think it is feasible if not this year then surely in a few years we are sponsored this week by Eero. Go to Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com to learn more. 
Now, look, we know how Wi-Fi usually works. You buy a router with a whole bunch of giant antennas on it, thinking you will finally cover your entire house, and you'll finally have coverage in those two or three back rooms where you never had coverage before. And in practice, you get that big router home, and every time it says it's going to have the best range, and it doesn't cover those rooms. It, it, Wi-Fi has been broken for so long because we rely on single routers. Eero has come out to change that. Eero is a system where you plug in one of these routers as your main one, but then you buy more than one. You, you can buy a two-pack, a three-pack, whatever amount you need. They cover about a 1,000 square feet each. So the typical American home, you might have two or three of them. And the app that, that it comes with helps you set them up in a really effective way, and it just blankets the entire house in fast, reliable Wi-Fi way better than a single router ever could. And again, as I mentioned, the app is super easy to use, tons of great features, and they're updating it all the time. And the performance you get is way better than you get out of a traditional like repeater or uh, range extender setup because they actually create a backhaul mesh network separately from the main network to communicate with each other and to form that, that huge mesh of Wi-Fi coverage in your home. I highly suggest you check out Eero, and don't just take my word for it. Do your own research, read reviews, and you will see for yourself this is a solid product with an incredible reputation that they've built up so far. It's been covered in the press. It has amazing reviews on Amazon and stuff. So check it out, and they've recently lowered their prices. So you can see for yourself the prices are the same everywhere now. A three-pack is now $100 less. A three-pack is now just $3.99. A two-pack is $2.99. And you can get these same prices everywhere. There's no special promo code. Just get an Eero wherever you want to from their site on, at Eero.com or just go to Best Buy or Amazon and buy one there. They know that that's what you're going to do anyway. So check it out today. Go to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com to learn more. Highly recommended. Thank you very much to Eero for sponsoring our show. So there's been a lot of motion in this um, this thing called Overcast. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, with this, but uh, apparently the developer of Overcast has been very busy and getting work done and has n- tweeted, the Overcast account has tweeted, found a fix for M4A chapters. They'll return in the next version. MP3 chapters continue to work great. They'll be easier to create soon. So there's a fair bit to unpack here. But let's start with M4A. What'd you do, Marco? So last episode, I described the problem that I was facing where basically the Apple low-level parser uh, would only recognize uh, chapters in MP3 and M4A files if they were named with .mp3 and .m4a extensions. And when Overcast downloads a file, it doesn't know the... uh, the type yet until it starts downloading it at which point i already am saving it to a file and would rather not move it for streaming reasons and anyway uh and so the hack i was doing before was that upon playback i would temporarily create two symlinks to the unextensioned file one of them with .mp3 one of them with .m4a have apple read those for the metadata parser and then um take the metadata from there i had mentioned that um that was no longer working with stability on APFS and in 10.3. Sometimes I would get crashes around those simlink creations or deletions. Uh, and so to avoid these crashes, I switched to my own metadata parser, which only supported MP3, and said, well, I'll figure out some other solution for M4A later. I have to fix these crashes now. And the solution I came to was just name all the files.m4a. And so... <laughs> <laughs> and and because I have my own parser now for MP3 chapters, so and my parser is 
as smart as I want it to be. And I decided to build in the smarts that say, who cares what the file is named? Just parse and look at these first bytes and you can tell what format it is anyway. So <laughs> so uh, my parser uh, is now responsible for MP3 streaming. And I use Apple's, again, for M4As on the files, all of which are now named .m4a. That's both extremely clever and completely bananas all at the same time. It's the perfect incarnation of file name extensions, highlighting <laughs> the fact that the name of the file has no bearing whatsoever on the format of the data it contains, and it's an absurd system, and Marco is it's like it's like a, a, a satire of uh, file name extensions. Like, you know what? I'm just naming every file on M4A because <laughs> that crap is meaningless, except to this stupid API that's too stupid to know what the hell kind of file it's being fed and doesn't let me specify, and it just figures it out by parsing the file name. Especially, like, Almost all formats, almost all modern file formats, even stuff as old as MP3, you can usually tell what format it is by looking at maybe the first 12 bytes of the file at most. You know, some files you could tell with even less. That's what the file command does. Right. Like, it's really easy to detect it. Like, an M4A always looks the same, and it's super easy to see it. Uh, the and, and MP3s can look two different ways up front, but they're both pretty easy to parse and detect. Like, I wrote code to do it, and I'm not a, you know, super crazy file engineer. Like, I just looked up the specs for these formats. And, oh, well, this format has these bytes up front, and this one has these. Done. Like, it isn't hard. And, you know, JPEG and ping, those can also, those are like, you know, eight bytes at the beginning, too. It's super easy. Sometimes they begin with the letters JPEG or GIF, like literal ASCII text. JFIF, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> JFIF, yep. the joint something international photo i think it's interchange format it doesn't really matter all right so also in this uh tweet uh you you had said mp3 chapters will be easier to create soon tell me more ask again later Mm -hmm. look you all know i'm making forecasts. the only question is when it comes out so when's it coming out i don't know probably soon oh yeah I'm, i'm trying to i'm putting out some overcast fires first but yeah probably soon it's been a long time coming. I think it's been more than a year since this. Since, more than a year since you were willing to talk about this program on the podcast in public, and who knows how long before that. This is this has been a heck of a gestation for this program. This program that people have already been using to to do it for its intended purpose for a long time. Now you just haven't gotten around to the point where you polish it up for release, right? There are a few little things I want to work out, but they're like minor UI issues uh, for the most part. It should be, you know, coming soon. And for those who don't know, Forecast is a uh, thing that's been charitably in private alpha um, that Marco wrote in order to break a podcast into chapters and do so easily and quickly. And people in the chat are asking about pricing. The The honest answer is that I still haven't quite decided for sure, but I'm leaning towards just making it free but not open source. Um, and, and there's lots of reasons for this. Maybe, maybe I'll talk about it once I release it, if I go this way. But the, the gist of it is basically, I don't think the market is going to be big enough to make it worth charging money for. Because when you charge money for things, you have to support it in a very different way. Uh, and and there's, there's, there's overhead to that. And I just don't think it would be worth it because I think the market for it is going to be pretty small. Um, so I, I don't think it's worth charging. Uh, and but at the same time, Open source is tricky when you're talking about entire apps. Like libraries and components, sure, that's easy. When you're talking about entire apps, though, um, you have a lot of problems with like 
people ripping it off and uploading it to the app store under their own name and st- like it's it's a big problem for open when you open sort of entire app uh, doing stuff like that so um i don't really want to deal with that and i think the value of open source is much higher at the library level than at the entire app level that's fair all right so you've also been busy with your apple watch and we kind of made a uh, mention of this earlier but it turns out your apple watch does have a purpose after all <laughs> yes for testing my apple watch <laughs> no it's, it's fine it's yeah I, I did a big watch update we we had kind of alluded to this months ago and the truth is i've been i've been working on offline watch playback for months now it has taken a very long time and there's lots of reasons for that and it wasn't the only thing i was doing there during that time you know i did all of 3.0 it was originally slated to be a headlining feature of 3.0 there are lots of reasons why that didn't happen um, the main reason is that the state that i had it in at the time 3.0 was going to ship it just had too many weird limitations and bugs and I decided it was not a good idea to have to make a big deal out of this feature, to have it be a headlining feature of this major update of my app, and to have it not work very well. That that didn't seem wise to me. So instead, I, I pushed it off to later, um, figuring you know maybe something will change in watchOS uh, in the next versions, and, and I can you know do it do it then. And there were there were some other factors involved um, that that influenced this as well. But suffice to say. It took a very long time to do because the way I did it, in order to get podcast playback on the Apple Watch, there's a bunch of major hoops you have to jump through. One of them is just the data transfer. Like it, the the watch has very limited resources in, in all kinds. That includes bandwidth, that includes storage and processing power. Um, and and the, the API for it is very limited. So there's certain things that you can't reliably do. Um, one of the things is that you can't reliably just feed it any arbitrary podcast file off the internet and expect it to work um so there, there are limitations in its api certain things it just doesn't play or doesn't play very well uh or uh certain formats and bit rates use way too much power and it actually becomes like a noticeable load on the watch that you want to avoid um there's also issues like if you're transferring it from the phone then you have a serious problem of of bandwidth and and of transfer speeds uh you know just it take it could take an hour to transfer a podcast file to the watch and oh seriously it's, if you don't compress it yeah <laughs> it, could, it could take a long time and because they you know a lot of times it's transferring over bluetooth sometimes it'll use wi-fi if it can but it's kind of vague as to when and whether it will do that uh so you can't really count on that so basically it, it's a huge challenge to get the files to the watch and then once they're on the watch there were there were massive challenges around. There's only a few different ways to play audio on the watch. Um, WatchOS 3.2 added a couple of big things. Before that, which is most of my development, <laughs> the APIs that were there, there, there were like three different ways to play audio files, and all of them had like fatal, massive problems for playing podcasts. Uh, one of them, you couldn't set the start time of the file. So if you started it, and then, then you close it and you wanted to start it again, you'd have to start from the beginning or somehow have the watch like splice the file. One of my prototypes, I actually had the watch splicing AAC files every 15 seconds uh, so that you would, <laughs> so that oh it, would be, it would be able to like look the, and play this huge playlist. It was, I tried a lot of things. <laughs> um, and it was, it was, it was a, a, a large period of trial and error. 
Uh, let's let's say that um, one of the APIs uh, that you've probably seen before. It, it you could present a sheet that that has the file, but it only has the seek back and forward by five seconds at a time, and there's no way to change that UI. Uh, so that is pretty bad also. That it does allow a start, a start time, which is fine, but if you start a workout or a background, it, then it stops playing. Uh, so, <laughs> and then there, there was a different one, the, uh, the WK Audio File Player API, which is, what, which is what the current store version, as we speak, uses. And that has tons of problems and shortcomings. And it's bizarre things. And by the way, I, I have... I have filed bugs. I have I have been in contact with Apple about all these different shortcomings, so I, I've done my duty there. Um, but you know, I, I think they're I don't think they have a lot of resources to devote to audio playback on the watch. Honestly, it seems like this is a pretty pretty you know rarely used thing, and their resources are probably elsewhere, like iOS eleven. You know, so anyway, um, the uh, the one of the issues with the with the WK audio file API is like things like if your app is in the background and you you initiate a player that player will just never play if if you go to note it has some integration with the now playing glance so if you go to the now playing glance and hit next track whatever was playing will never play again but there's no way to tell in the api so you go back to the app and the api says i'm still playing yes i'm playing at 1x but then you just notice if you pull the time, you know, actually you say you're playing and you say you're playing at 1x, but the timestamp is not going up. So in the version in the store right now, I have things like timers that pull every so often and check to see <laughs> is the timestamp going up as it should. If not, tear down and recreate the entire player. There are so many limitations uh, and weird bugs with the current one. Um, what happened in 3.2? Well, first of all, 3.2 made it possible at all to use this API because they added a set timestamp method on that so that you, you could start a file from the middle. And then they also very quietly, with no comment, except in the release notes, they just they added the ability to use AV Audio Player. I'm like, oh, nice. yeah. It's like, well, then why bother with all this crap? Yes, let me use that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should point out too, as far as I know, I don't think... I can actually move my entire core audio stack onto the watch yet. Um, some of core audio is there. I don't know if enough of it is there or if I'm maybe missing things like audio toolbox and some of the little accessory things. So I'm not, in, I don't think I can actually move the entire thing over yet. Um, but AV audio players is good enough to do everything except smart speed and voice boost. And it, it has everything else I need. It has a pretty good speed engine. It has, you know, it has all, it, it is an in-process API uh, the only the reason I, I wasn't using it before in the version that's in the store right now is that there it 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 wasn't backgrounding for me reliably enough at least like it would background sometimes but other times and then I I realized um, yesterday you had to set different background audio flags in different places for that one than you did for the original WK Audio Player once I set those it works perfectly uh, well nice. with, with some. <laughs> with a few bugs along the way but it's suffice to say those are all fixed now as of about two hours ago it works perfectly the version that is currently awaiting apple's approval is this new version with av audio player it's going to be awesome um i should point out a few other things that i hit along the way uh one of the things i did early on that that took some time but was worth it as i mentioned uh, none of these methods on the watch support smart speed or voice boost and 
if you're accustomed to listening to Overcast with Smart Speed, listening to anything else seems kind of broken. It, it just sounds wrong. And, and you can do basic speed-ups on the watch, but I don't have the low-level access to the audio stream to be able to do Smart Speed. And so what I did instead was on the phone, I, I experimented and found something fast enough eventually, I'm actually transcoding the files on the phone. If you have Smart Speed enabled, it bakes in Smart Speed. That's kind of bananas. You know, whatever settings that you would play the play the uh, track on on your phone, if you have it say, you know, play at smart speed at 1.25x, then it will play on the watch at 1.25x and it'll have smart speed baked in. I'm not able to do voice boost yet, and this is due to some low-level implementation details. Basically, if I run this through an audiograph, it is 10 times slower, and it, it transcodes at about 12x real time. If I don't run it through an audiograph and just process the samples raw... It runs at about 110 or 112x on an iPhone 7. So I can transcode, you know, 100 times faster than real time um, by not using Goodness. the graph. So it, doing, it the, doing it through the graph is just too slow to really ship that. Um, and so there's no voice boost yet. I have not yet written my own voice boost that doesn't use a combination of audio units. I plan to, but I haven't yet. Uh, that's a low-level thing that will be a fun project someday, but uh, it's it hasn't happened yet. So that's why there's no voice boost. But there is smart speed because smart speed is a combination of C functions, not audio units. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, when you you know when you send a file to the watch, the phone transcodes it. It transcodes it also down down to a lower bit rate. I did a whole bunch of testing to figure out like what is the best low bit rate way for spoken audio to to be heard on a watch obviously there is some quality loss so the, it's it's just a question of balance of how do i balance this? because the bigger the files are the much longer they take to transfer to the watch for me that a whole bunch of testing with heaac and aac and and even things like um some of the newer formats the aug um what is it opus I don't know if it's, sorry if it's not officially AUG, but it's from those people, the new Opus format, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff, um, and that would have been harder to, to decode because uh, the watch doesn't support it. Anyway, I did a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I'm transcoding to that on the phone, on demand, baking in smart speed. It also has a few other cool optimizations. For example, if you are halfway through a podcast and you say send to the watch, it only sends the second half because there's no reason to send the part you already listened to. Anyway, here's all my secrets. That's how you do it. And uh, it's a whole lot of work, but now I finally have offline watch playback, and with the version that will hopefully be approved in the next day or two, it'll be way, way better, because it'll move to this newer API that's way more stable and has speaker output and everything else. Uh, so it's been, it's been quite a trip. Oh, not to mention the whole system of like syncing between the watch and the phone. That's a thing. You have to sync your progress and not lose stuff and not have stuff clobber itself during sync and everything else. Um, it's been... It's been some quite quite a lot of effort, and all of this is for a feature that relatively nobody will use. And it's hard to justify this, but but there's a few reasons why I thought it was worth it. You know, right now, it, according to my analytics, something like you know you know half a percent of people are using it or something like that. Um, and I you know I haven't done a great job of, of promoting it, so a lot of people don't know it's there yet. But it's there's there's not a lot of people who are going to use this feature. But it was a very high demanded feature. And it's the kind of thing where, like, you might decide. So, like, what I've done is, while testing this, I have paired my favorite walking headphones to my watch. 
And so it kind of forces me to use my watch more as the podcast player because I don't want to unpair and repair <laughs> my headphones back to my phone every time I like leave to walk the dog. Um, so I've, I've kind of gotten into this habit over the last uh, week or week or two and uh, and really, you know, really gotten into this. And it is pretty cool. I, I got to say it, it. It is pretty nice. It's not as good as using a phone, but you have to carry a phone. And for a lot of people, people have been begging me since the watch came out. This has been one of the top featured uh, or one of the top feature requests for Overcast since the watch came out um, because a lot of people either can't or don't want to bring their phone certain places where they can bring their watch. Um, it's a very common request, for example, in certain kinds of exercise like jogging where a lot of people don't want to carry their phone or it's too clunky or it's in some kind of inconvenient like, you know, arm thing or backpack or something else uh, then you know they want it to be totally on their watch, so I understand that. I'm I'm probably never going to run in my life, but I I understand the people who do that, that. That's so like it matters a lot to a small number of people. That's the kind of thing I enjoy doing. You know, it's it's never going to be worth it by the numbers, but I do enjoy doing it just because of how much it matters to that small number of people. And the fact is, it also. I think business-wise, it might also be a safe bet. It might also be a, be a good thing to do because, you know, Apple likes it for one thing. So, you know, it, it's, it probably makes my app more likely to be featured by Apple in the future. Uh, maybe it increases my chances of getting an ADA. One can hope. I never really think I have a chance at that, but I really want one. <laughs> so <laughs> one can hope, right? Um, I also, um, I think that it's the kind of feature, kind of like when people buy SUVs and like, what if I need to haul something someday and they never haul anything, right? <laughs> but like, I feel like if you're looking at, at podcast apps that are out there and you you might think, oh, I want that, even if you never end up using it or you hardly ever use it, that might have still helped me, you know, get that sale or get that person to use Overcast instead of something else. So I think in, in, for a lot of reasons, I think it is probably worth having done. It did take a lot longer than I thought it would and a lot more work than I thought it would. And it's not done either. Like there's what I have now is a system where you still have to manually send episodes one by one to the watch and they still take forever to transfer. And I'm not entirely sure I can ever really fix the taking forever to transfer thing. I'm, you know, that might just have to like wait out the hardware advancements. Um, But like, you know, sending one by one to the watch is also not great. Uh, People have requested things like, automatically send episodes of this podcast or this playlist to the watch and that has its own challenges and limitations like for instance i don't really know how much space i have to deal with and if you if you tell people you can send this playlist to the watch i'm going to design this feature for my playlist which might have like 15 podcasts on it at most and then somebody like john is going to use it and they're going to try to sync 400 audiobooks to it and they're going to be mad when it doesn't work because <laughs> there's no there's not enough, not enough space in the watch which i can't even tell as the programmer so it doing anything more because of the constrained nature of the watch is going to be harder than doing those same things on the iPhone. It's also going to be like massive UI challenges, right? Like people are already asking for things like chapter navigation on the watch. And it's it, like, it's really hard to fit a good UI that is both attractive and usable on that watch screen. Uh, and it's, <laughs> everything people want me to do with this feature uh is is going to be hard to do basically but i think i finally got the basics nailed down in this update that hopefully will be shipping around the time this podcast comes out uh the the, the 3.1.2 update um hopefully everybody will have that now and and it's going to be great and 
I'm kind of glad to have it finally be done, and, and now I have a reason to use my watch again. Yeah. So have you been using the watch for anything other than podcasting? Uh, well, you know, I use it on my dog walks. So, you know, I, I still prefer mechanical watches greatly for general use and general wearing. Um, but the Apple Watch is, as the entire world plus Apple have figured out over the last you know year or two, whatever it's been, the Apple Watch is pretty good for fitness stuff. And so I am quite enjoying on my dog walks being able to track the the uh, time and distance that I have gone uh, and and get a nice cool GPS map of it if I ever want that. It will probably remain my like taking walks watch, but for other times in my day, I prefer mechanicals for other reasons. Did you get a series two? You mentioned the GPS. Are you saying because you have your phone with you? That's why you get the GPS trace. No, I actually did get a series two. I, I got a series two this past um, spring or this past winter while testing this because the build run debug loop on the apple watch is so incredibly slow because <laughs> the the hardware is really basic and it, and when you're doing like build and run and build and run and debug it's all going also through your phone and or like and, and then to the watch over bluetooth or whatever it's very very slow to the point where like changing something on the watch and building and building and running might be like a 45 second long cycle and when you're doing a lot of that, that time really adds up and really gets annoying. So, as so, like after like a day of of like trying all these deployment methods in the watch, I went to the Apple Store and got a Series Two. I'm like, because I asked underscore like, is it faster? And he actually, of course, he timed it. And of course, he knew like exactly oh, to the second. Course. And it it was something like 20 seconds faster on on the Series Two. I'm like, done, sold. Because if you can save me 20 seconds every single time I'm building and running on the watch, that is going to add up. And it it did. So I do have a Series 2. I'm very, very glad I got the Series 2 because the difference for development was immediately and and incredibly apparent. So what Series 2 did you get? I know you're just getting it, oh, I just want something that's faster for me to do my builds on, right? But then did you go, okay, well, since I'm buying one, which one do I want? What color do I want? What bands? Like, what did you get? You know, I did go through a lot of that 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 debate. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just getting it for development. I should just get the aluminum basic cheapo, the cheapest one I can get. Like, you know, just get that one. I should even not even, every fiber of your being screams out, no. Right. Well, and in theory, I don't even need the series two. I could have gotten the series one. Same processor, same speed, just you know, mm-hmm. no GPS, no you know? GPS, yes, and so. not not super waterproof. So I could have gotten that. Um, but once again, your inner Marco says no. Well, here's the thing. Oh, here we go. <laughs> So I'm accustomed to now wearing nice watches. The reason I got into nice... <laughs> oh you need to have a watch that lets you live in the style to which you have become accustomed. <laughs> the reason I got into nice watches is because I fell in love with how the Apple Watch made me feel when I looked at it on my wrist. That is why. When the Apple Watch first came out, I obsessed crazily over which bands to get which color combinations worked like i i went over this for like weeks i was agonizing like oh will this band be more convenient to latch or this one or whatever else and and so it mattered a lot to me and i and i really enjoy the way the steel watch looks i i and i really unfortunately don't enjoy the way the aluminum ones look the aluminum ones to me look a lot like a phone on your wrist the steel ones don't look like an analog device by any means, but I, I think the steel ones are very attractive. I decided after much agonizing that I wanted a steel one again. The only way to get a steel one was to get the Series 2. You can't you can get the Series 1 in steel. So I got the Series 2, and I got the steel, and uh, I, I have it on... 
I, I think I came with a Milanese because that was the only one I could get in stock, which I immediately sold. Um, and I'm just using my old sport band with it. It makes me a little sad that you uh, haven't decided to come crawling back to the Apple Watch. But, you know, to each their own. Like what you like. No, I mean, it It has, a, no question, it has a lot of utility. But it also has a lot of things it's not so great about. And, it like, man, I'm telling you, when I'm wearing it now, like, for for this testing, these testing periods, every time I turn my wrist to look at the time, it doesn't show. Like, every time. It's just like, just... Oh, let me exaggerate this motion again, or let me tap it. It's just like, oh, come on. So, yeah, like, when you're accustomed to regular watches, the Apple Watch has a few things about it that are very annoying, mostly the the delay when looking at the time. Uh, and so it's fine, you know. It, it, it the All the utilities of it, things like notifications all day and stuff, I don't really care i don't I, I turn off most notifications i don't like having a lot of them um so most of that stuff does is not of much use to me um and the fitness stuff i don't usually have much of a fitness regimen when i do it's extensive dog walking so i'm using it now for that for most things in my life i i don't have the kind of lifestyle that benefits heavily from the apple watch's good things and the apple watch's bad things irritate me did you get the earth day badge I did not. I did get uh, reminded about the Earth Day badge on Earth Day, uh, but I hit dismiss and did not get it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get it uh, because it was disgusting weather over here. I didn't get that one. I did get the uh, Turkey Day one, but I did not get the Earth Day one. What Did you, John? No. Fair enough. And you haven't put your watch on in months, I assume? Well, I wore it on vacation. I wore it the whole week. Why did you wear it on vacation? That's, that's what I do. I do it when I travel. Well, and I will say... It is a really nice travel watch because it sets its own time zone and you can have your boarding passes showing on it and everything else. So it is kind of nice for that. And walking directions in the city to be able to like tap on your wrist to tell you which, which street to turn down instead of having to constantly take out your phone. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The main downside for me is that then you have to bring its separate charger. And I, I'm trying to minimize the chargers that I bring on trips. And that's usually a really easy one to, to let go of. All right. Uh, anything else on anything watch related? hopefully not <laughs> it's been a lot a lot of apple watch stuff last last couple of weeks but uh, hey, man, you're, you've been working a lot yeah I'm, i know I'm proud of you well and, and like this whole like the whole transcoding engine and baking in smart speed that i did all, that work was all done months ago and i've just been just been sitting on it waiting for a chance to use it and and waiting for basically waiting for the watch apis to both get better and for me to figure them out um, which both had to happen for this to uh, to finally be released, but here it is. We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Many of us listening to the show are programmers or otherwise nerds, and we know how to make websites without using Squarespace. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of time, and it's a lot of ongoing maintenance and support that, frankly, you probably shouldn't be spending your time doing. Because for like 90% of what people need out of websites, Squarespace does it all. Squarespace has built-in blogs, portfolios, even stores, all sorts of content sites that you can make, and even dynamic store sites with Squarespace. It is really incredible what you can do with Squarespace. And no matter what your skill level is, if you're a novice all the way up to if you're a web programmer, Squarespace can work for you. It's easy to use, but there's advanced options if you want them. Everything can be visual and drag and drop, or you can get in there and actually edit code. It, it spans the gamut, and best of all, 
once you get your site set up with Squarespace, you don't really need to touch it. If you're making a site for yourself or somebody else, Squarespace supports it. And their platform handles it, and they give you upgrades. And if you, you have these great, beautiful designs that you don't have to worry about, you don't have to do things like test them on new devices as they come out to make sure they look right on the new screen size of whatever. No, they do that for you. And if you want to change your whole design, you can do it in like two clicks. It's amazing what you can do with Squarespace with very, very little work. So start your free trial today. I highly suggest that you try it because it is not worth spending your time mucking around with some manual installation of some CMS on some server. Just use Squarespace and be done with it and move on to the thing you actually need the website for, whether it's a project or a new business or whatever else. Make your next move with Squarespace. Start a free trial set today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Yet another tick in the Uber is gross box. Um, it seems like Uber has been using private a- APIs to read I- iPhone uh, serial numbers, and or they were doing this anyway uh, a couple of years ago. They were reading iPhone serial numbers, reporting them up to their own servers, and thus this allowed them to track uh, installations between deletes. So you could install Uber. It would look at your phone serial number. Let's call it one, two, three, four, five. It's the same combination I have in my luggage. And then, uh, it, you would delete the app. It would, you could then reinstall it later. It will see that the serial number is still one, two, three, four, five. And it would say, ha ha, this is user A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so allegedly they were using this for fraud prevention, which is a legitimate explanation, I think, but it just feels super gross. And so the story goes that Tim Cook called in Travis Kalanick, Kalanick, whatever his name is, the really skeezy um, head of Uber, and basically said, if you don't get rid of this post-haste, we're going to pull you from the App Store. And guess what happened? They got rid of it. I don't think there's that many interesting things to discuss here, but perhaps one of you has some thoughts that I haven't thought of yet. I mean, to me, the, the main interesting part here, I mean, you know, we know this has been talked to death on other shows, so we're not going to we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. The interesting part to me here is not necessarily the horrible things that that Uber did, because Uber is always doing horrible things. And I, I urge anybody out there to stop using it. Um, I've been using Lyft since one of their other recent scandals, and it's great. It's totally fine. It's like the same or better. So just use Lyft or something else. You know, it's fine. Uh, stop using Uber. Anyway, um, one of the uh, cool things about this that I thought was worth worth mentioning is, and first of all, all these holes that we know of are now patched. Um, IOKit, IOKit's a weird framework. Um, there's a there's all sorts of stuff on your phone that apps should not have access to. Things like the phone part of it. You know, like there's a reason why like apps can't like you know dial your phone for you without interaction or read your phone calls or anything. All the stuff that iOS must wall off from apps is a private framework. And the way iOS is structured, apps, with with the exception of jailbreaking, which ruins everything, but regularly in your phone, (laughs) apps can't call into private frameworks. They just technically can't. There's no way to do it. They're walled off from apps. IOKit is technically not one of these. And it's the the role of IOKit in, in iOS is mostly to read data about the hardware. And a lot of things that are in the UI device uh, API 
are just thin wrappers around UI kit calls. Things like reading the the screen brightness level or the system thin wrappers around I/O kit calls. Sorry, yeah, or the the system battery level or you know things like that. It just information about the hardware. Uh, this is where things like the UDID used to be, although now that's that has, that's no longer available. And Apple is pretty good about like any any way that you that you have to um, to uniquely identify phones. Apple has been slowly getting rid of. Um, the IO kit for whatever reason, as I said, like it, it's, it's not in that walled off area where the rest of the private frameworks are so that it, it actually is callable. Uh, but it's, but you aren't allowed to, it's undocumented, at least on iOS and it's, it's, you know, officially forbidden and Uber is doing all sorts of tricks to avoid being detected. Um, so I think there, there are two angles of this that, that are worth talking about. One is, is it possible for Apple to prevent the use of private APIs on a large scale? The way that they usually prevent it is during app review, they have some kind of special testing environment where if an app calls a private API during app review, or if it has a private API symbols, like literally in the app, so if it has like the name of a private function in the code, Apple can flag that and they will reject it automatically for that. But there are ways to get around this. One of them is if you you can load the module dynamically or you can you can not have the name of the function in the code. You can have a a scrambled string that in code you unscramble at runtime and then call that. That's usually how these things are done. And again, this doesn't work for calling super private framework stuff, but it does work for calling private methods on public things. Uh, or for for uh, for the framework of IOK, which is this weird kind of middle ground where it is kind of technically public. Anyway, do you think there is a way for Apple to ever fix that? Uh, it's kind of the halting problem thing where can you tell me, uh, here is this program. Can you tell me how this program behaves? You know, in in the general case, no, not really. But all these things you're talking about, all you need to do, I think, is do enough so that if something gets through your system, it was clearly done intentionally. And like in the, in the Uber case, one of the other uh, stories about this is that uh, the way they were getting around it is, you know, have, have all these secret ways of dynamically loading the code and all that other stuff. But just to be safe, don't do that when the gps detects that you're somewhere within apple's campus right so they geofence like the apple campus and say you know when you're inside this perimeter don't ever try to do the sneaky thing only when you're outside this perimeter somewhere else on earth then do the sneaky thing to call the private abi so in that case like again you know trying to detect hey is the program doing that like in general no there's no general purpose computable reasonable time way to figure that out or at all actually you know um because it literally isn't calling the bad API. And, you know, then you have to detect, how can I tell if it is doing something that lets it know when it shouldn't do the naughty thing that it's doing, you know? But, but again, you just make the test hard enough so that if it is doing that, someone can't say, oh, we just did that by accident. That was just a bug, right? You know, I didn't mean to do that at all. It's so clearly intentional. Like, at the point where you're putting scrambled strings or assembling symbol names out of a bunch of scrambled data spread all over your program, right? Like, there's no way you can you can ex- say, explain that away versus say, oh, I just called an Apple API and the Apple API called a private thing that accessed some file outside the sandbox and it's totally not my fault and that happens all the time. And Apple will be like, oh, yeah, I can see. You know, Eventually, you can convince Apple 
this I was not doing anything intentionally bad. This is just some, you know, something that you didn't realize was actually happening in your code and I'm doing the right thing and let's just all get through it. So I think that's all they need to do. That's probably what they're currently doing. And I think uh, that is, that's probably sufficient. I was thinking too, like the environment that they have an app review that automatically detects whenever this boundary is crossed that, that, you know, your app is calling something private that it shouldn't be. What if they could deploy that to iPhones and maybe not to all iPhones because I assume there's some some degree of overhead uh, involved here that, that maybe would make it too power inefficient or too slow. But what if they deployed it to, say, a large group of Apple employees' phones? You know, like would, would that would probably catch a lot of things in popular apps, right? So, like, whatever whatever environment they have to detect these things in app review, spread that out wider. Maybe they have like a whole bunch of virtual iPhones in the cloud that that you know simulate using apps and that they tr- they track them on those they could do all sorts of fun stuff they could just override gps like to get rid of the geofences sure. like if you're once you're running this faked environment you just you just you know hard code the gps to be antarctica or something and you're you know you're all set right exactly uh, and you know change the ip and everything else so anyway the, i think expanding that virtual environment would be one way to do this whether they or you know that that like you know tripwire environment whether it's just apple employees or whether it's simulated things in the cloud or whether it's both or who knows i think they could they could do a lot there the second thing i wanted to talk about about the uber thing though which i think is probably more interesting is the dynamic here of this large app violates a a, a rule in a pretty big way like re- obviously you know, knowing it, willfully violating it, blocking out Apple's campus area so they wouldn't see it, uh, you know, evading detection, doing like it. Obviously, like this was not like, oh, I accidentally called the serial number function. Like, no, this is like <laughs> willful violation and malicious intent to you know uh, evade these these rules that are there for very good reasons in order to invade people's privacy. Like, it, it's it's really bad. And, it, you know, if I did that in Overcast, I would be kicked out of the App Store immediately. And there would be no recourse. I would be lucky if I was even told the reason. And that would be it. I'd be gone. But if Facebook does things like this in their app, which they do, uh, and they get caught sometimes, and they say it's a bug. Oh, sorry, we left the audio session running. It's a bug that we are running constantly in the background when we aren't in use. Uh, you know, they, mm-hmm. Facebook does it all the time. Um, Twitter has ha, Twitter has all sorts of awful things with you know tracking apps that are installed and everything. Apple's locked on most of them, but um, and then you know you then you have Uber doing crazy crap like this, and again and and their crazy location stuff. Oh, we need your location all the time now, and all sorts of crazy stuff. If a big company breaks a rule, even in the most brazen, outrageous way like this, they get a meeting with Tim Cook, where Tim Cook calmly expresses his disappointment in them and. Like any good dad would. I know. And, uh, oh, man, I would not want to be in there. <laughs> but And and sternly tells them, like, you're going to stop doing this now. Like, that's that's certainly a stern warning, but, like, that's awfully special treatment. That is being incredibly generous towards this company that is literally defrauding you. Like, it's like <laughs> they're, they're doing really uh, – <laughs> you know, there's no way to read this charitably, right? Why – wasn't uber just kicked out of the app store and i think the answer to that is interesting so like i have some theories you know obviously there's a question of like who needs who more right and i think 
the answer is yeah okay i think apple could afford to do that you know i think i think uber needs apple more than apple needs uber but you do have to think about it just for a second like you know how many customers would apple lose by doing that like it's probably not zero uh you know so that's something you have to think about right it it would be even worse if that was facebook you know like if, if so like there are these big companies that Apple actually doesn't wield complete power over, that there is some power in the other direction as well. And Uber is big enough that I think it's one of those. Facebook is certainly one of those. Uh, Facebook is probably the biggest one, actually, when you talk about iOS apps, maybe, except maybe maybe YouTube or Google, Google Maps would also be pretty high up there, but, but uh, Facebook, I think, is probably the biggest. So like, there's that angle of like, Apple maybe can't kick out some... They're like too big to fail. They're like too big to kick out, right? Um, also... If somebody like Facebook or Uber got kicked out of the App Store, they'd probably sue Apple. And what would be the result of that lawsuit? Would they bring up any trust? Would Apple be at risk of maybe having to give up some of their control over the App Store for antitrust concerns or for other legal concerns? Like, would they be at risk of giving up app approval? I don't think Uber would sue Apple. I don't see anyone suing Apple for this. Like, I, yeah, I hear you hear people talk about it sometimes, but there, there are big problems with that. First of all, Apple has more money than you, like whoever you is. <laughs> Apple has more money than you, right? So, in general, it's good when people have a lot of money. You want to sue them and get some of that money, but it's bad if you're going into a lawsuit that may turn out to be like this long running thing because you will run out of money before Apple does. And second. The suit for the, the the case for antitrust on Apple grows weaker by the day as Android is like eighty percent smartphone market share and growing, you know, worldwide. It's really tough to make that sell. Uh, and third, the whole App Store agreement, everything is, I feel like, pretty ironclad and doesn't leave any room. And your only hope would be to say, yeah, but it's a special situation because Apple has a monopoly on X, Y, and Z. Like it is, it's so difficult. I feel like there's almost no legal recourse the only the best way you could go is maybe defamation because apple will have to say uber was doing an, a naughty thing and they can say no we weren't apple is you know uh whatever whatever the equivalent of defamation for companies is probably maybe it's the same thing um but i i, I don't see the antitrust as being concerned i see i see this like uh, the first thing you said that the uh similar situation that we i think we've all experienced in some way directly or indirectly in the u.s anyway has been fights between uh, cable companies and channels Right. Where there's some disagreement about how much it's going to cost to get HBO or ESPN on the cable package. This is going back in time a little bit back when people still had cable. Um, uh, And there would be this this standoff in the same way there's a standoff between Tim Cook and Uber or whatever. Like, again, Facebook is totally the biggest one. Say Facebook does nasty things. Why does Facebook not get kicked out? Why do they get like a stern talking to? Because it's a game of chicken. It's like, you know that we can kick you out of the store. And we know that you know that if we kicked you out of the store, it would be disastrous for us and our platform. But we might just do it anyway to teach you a lesson, like, temporarily. And so they're just staring at each other, you know, waiting to see who who twitches first. Um, and with the cable companies and the channels, very often it gets to the point where it's like, sorry, you know, Comcast is no longer going to have ESPN, right? Or is no longer going to carry Yankees games on this channel or whatever. And then it's a PR war between the, the cable company and the channel to say call the the cable company and tell them you demand to get the channel back and the cable company says call whatever and tell them that you demand to be more reasonable because we can't pay you know what i mean and that game of chicken usually doesn't last that long and what always ends up happening is 
the channel comes back to the cable carrier in most cases if it's an important enough channel. Because in the end, an iPhone without Facebook is a bigger problem than an iPhone with a Facebook that violates the rules every once in a while and has to, and, you know, and then like you yell at them and you catch them and they fix it, right? Uh, and so like, and and the people don't know who to blame. Why can't I get me ESPN anymore? I turn on the TV, I can't get the channel anymore. I'm going to change cable providers if I can at all. If I can't change cable providers, I'm just inarticulately angry. But if I can change providers, you know, if that's the one channel that was the most important channel to me, I'm going to change providers. People would change phones if they couldn't get Facebook. It's like, you can get an iPhone, but oh, I heard the iPhone doesn't have Facebook anymore. They will get a different phone. That's the kind of power Facebook had. Does Uber have that power? Probably not as much. It's much smaller. There are alternatives, yada, yada, yada. But that's that's the whole that's the whole relationship here. So I don't think you know, I don't think you need to bring in threats of uh, lawsuits or other things into it. I think you just need to look at the the power dynamic of customers want the app. The app makes your phone more valuable. If your phone doesn't have the app, it's totally a PR war. Like can you imagine like Uber no longer on Apple phones? And you know, maybe that's not a big deal because people would have all the entertainers, but it, but if if even for like a week they said Guess what? Facebook no longer on Apple phones. That story would last like three years of people saying, I was going to get an iPhone, but I heard they don't have Facebook. Three years ago, I heard they don't have Facebook. I was like, that was just for two weeks. It's like, well, no, too late. It's already out there. I got an Android phone again. So <laughs> it, yeah, Apple does not want that to happen. Um, and speaking of relationship between Apple and important software companies, software companies that at various times when Apple has been not as rich and powerful as it is now have been even more have had even more influence over what apple does the best most recent example is apple's entire modern operating system plan to you know get away from classic mac os to do something to replace it with something else was essentially squashed by microsoft and adobe two companies saying yeah we're not going to make apps for that and apple said well there's no whatever plan we thought we had that we thought was all awesome and we had a cool code name for it uh but it's you know forget it because if Apple and Adobe aren't on board and we can't convince them, there's no point in us even doing this because a Mac that can't run Microsoft or Adobe software is pointless. And so they didn't. And they scrapped that plan, uh, the Rhapsody plan, and instead they did Mac OS X with Carbon, and that go- got those guys on board. Um, and that's like one of the biggest, most important decisions Apple ever made, the life of the company at stake, and who essentially ended up being, you know, having veto power over what Apple does two third-party software companies with really important applications and these days i feel like facebook and to uh, facebook and you know google slash youtube and then a few other uh people to a lesser degree have veto power over a huge number of platforms and there is you know android i feel like has more power because if if you can't put your application on android and that's 80 percent of the world's smartphones that's a big problem uh and then on apple apple needs these applications because they're a smaller percentage and the whole point of their phone is you get the best stuff and you get it the soonest and if they take that away then that's a problem so I'm, I'm not surprised at these sort of uh two people yelling at each other and you know being naughty and getting caught and going around in circles i don't see any way that's going to change uh unless the power dynamic changes uh, and in the meantime if the power dynamic is not like that and you are just marco with one application you apple doesn't have to play those games with you they can just shut you down and that's that's the way it is and makes perfect sense and uh there's no sense getting upset about the double standard just uh learn to be smart and uh hide in the rocks if you're a little mouse (laughs) all right when the asteroid comes you'll be the one to survive and it turns out okay well not you specifically probably you specifically mouse will be dead but there will be other mice that live (laughs) It'll, it'll be fine well this took a turn Thanks to our three sponsors this week, Squarespace, Eero, and Fracture. And we'll see you next week.
You have made a long trip. You have gone on a grand adventure. Would you call it a tour? Uh, you could call it a grand tour, actually. I would love to know, John, what did you think of Britain? So, unfortunately for you, I came back from the UK and did another podcast where we talked about all the stuff, and that was last night. So, oh, who got to you first? You got scooped. You got scooped by Merlin. Merlin did. Right, it was right. We did rectifs. So we talked about travel stuff. Well, fortunately, we can probably release faster than they can. <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, that that's the spirit, yeah. Marco. Well, anyway, I. Uh, what do you want to know? I can cover. I can cover different stuff, I suppose. Okay, so how was how was the plane travel? You went direct from Boston to Heathrow. Yep, it was fine. It was. I yeah, got very lucky. I've been lucky on my flights recently. Not really bumpy at all. Straightforward. I, I we went to British Airways, and we didn't go like the fancy class, but we didn't go like the cheapest one. It's like whatever one is in. The middle, as far as I can tell, it is exactly the same as the cheapest seats, except for you have slightly more leg room, which I appreciated because I got long legs. Um, uh, but yeah, it was nice. There was there was USB ports in the back of the seats, which I hadn't seen before, which is you know convenient. Um, on the way back, I think it's the first time I've ever flown on a seven forty seven. Did you stare out the window for six hours, whatever it took you to get there and back? That's what I do. Oh my god! So, so your poor wife is just sitting there, basically doing your own thing. She is not suffering. She, she, uh, well, playing Sudoku and watching movies the whole time. <laughs> time flew by from the way there. She's like, oh, I didn't even notice that six hours just flew by. She's she's obsessed with Sudoku lately. So, she just like if you were, if you were to take movies ever, it was like this person is just staring at these numbers, and she would just do that for <laughs> a really, occasionally. She would move or twitch in some way, but mostly stare at the numbers. Indeed, indeed. Fair enough. All right. So you traveled to Heathrow. What what were some of the high? Let, let, how about this? What were your favorite things that you participated in? Oh, well, even before we got there, um, the food I had on British Airways going to London was the best airplane food I've ever had, with the possible exception of Midwest Express's uh, fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, which anyone who even remembers what Midwest Express was knows that that was a good deal. Um, and they had metal silverware for crying out loud. Midwest Express, RIP. Uh, <laughs> unless they're still alive, in which case, sorry, but I haven't flown them in years. Um, but yeah, the British, you know, everything's relative. It's airplane food, right? But the airplane food on the way out was like, you know, full English breakfast thing, but imagine like the airplane version of that. And it was passably edible, which is, wow. which is a hell of a thing. Glowing wow. review, especially the eggs. You know what eggs are like on planes. Like, why even bother? Like, I expected them to just be like a complete write-off, but but I ate them. Um, and on the way back, it was uh, 
bangers and mash type thing. So first of all, they, yes. they're doing like stereotypical British type food. And like, I'm going to say both of them are better than WWDC lunch easily. Well, they also cost you more than $40. <laughs> Oh god, they I don't know how you want to factor out how much it cost in these plane tickets, how much of that was paying for that meal. But anyway, there was a lot of food, there was variety, and every part of it was way better than I thought it would be for airline for modern airline food. Like I don't know what like old style like in the sixties airline food was like real food, but like for all my life, with the exception of Midwest Express, airline food has just been grim. And so this was, you know, better than grim. So I was I was uh, happy about that. Okay, so you stare out the window for six hours. You don't play any Zelda or anything like that. You're just staring out the window. I can't. I can't look at the screens. I can't watch a movie. All I can do is listen to podcasts, which is exactly what I did. I forgot to bring as I as I tweeted. I forgot to bring oh, my, yeah, forgot light, my lightning to to a headphone adapter, which I only realized literally as I'm going to. Well, let me get all my stuff plugged in. <laughs> oh, ah. No. So what did you end up doing? You used something Bluetooth. So, uh, well. So I figured out why I did it, first of all. Like, this is not the first time I've flown with my iPhone 7. I've had it since, like, launch or whatever, whenever I got it. Like, it's not the first time I've done it. I've flown with my iPhone 7 before, and I've remembered to bring the adapter. I think the problem is I flew with it. I brought the adapter uh, because the, you're worried. Like, when you first get the thing, oh, I've got a, I've got a phone with no headphone jack. i gotta remember, I got to think about this. It's a front of mind. You know, i gotta, I got to worry about it, right? And then you do it, and you remember it, and you bring it, and you're like, your brain's like, well, you've solved that problem. Now you never need to worry about your phone again. Uh, but you do because every time you fly, you have to make sure the adapter's in there. So anyway, now I have two adapters, one of which is permanently in the case with the Bose headphones, with my Bose noise canceling headphones. So problem solved there. Um, on the way out, what I did was I took my earbuds, which I had with me because I know I'm an overpacker, like my lightning earbuds that came with the phone. I put them in my ears and I put the noise canceling headphones over the earbuds so I could have noise canceling and also podcasts. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) Oh my God. That is absolutely preposterous, but that actually ended up working. Yeah. Totally worked. That's awesome. What did you guys do the first day? So you arrived. What what time of day did you arrive? Uh, we had like a morning flight. So uh, we got up an ungodly hour. We got up like 4 a.m. to get our flight out. And But anyway, by the time we get there, it was by the time I think we got to the hotel, it was like dinner time, I think. I don't know okay. the exact like you're so scrambled up from the flying. But anyway, sure. the whole, whole day was shot whole day of because course, you're going you're going east. What do we do for the various days? We did like all the touristy stuff you can do in London. You name some touristy thing you can do in London, chances are we did it. Tower or, London. Yes. All right. Uh, uh, Ch- what's, uh, Churchill's War Rooms. Yes. Did you like that? It was fine. Oh, John. <laughs> Poor <laughs> Tina. The Br- British Museum. Um, the, the, uh, we saw Big Ben, Parliament, uh, Westminster Abbey, Windsor Castle. Like we did all the things. We, you know... We had fish and mm-hmm. chips. Uh, Tell me how I, amazing the fish and chips were. Oh, I don't like fish and chips, but uh, Tina would like that. Oh, <laughs> God bless America. Or God save the queen, whatever. I don't like fish. Uh, I got, but I got, uh, a, I don't like fish either, but I like fish and chips. No, I got a pretty good pub sandwich made with sausage. A lot of things in, in England have sausage in them, and I like sausage, and so I had them, and they were good. Um, we ate at a lot of different restaurants, um, had all sorts of different kinds of food. Got to see uh, some some people that we both know in London. Yeah, it was fine. It was nice. The kids weren't with us. In case this isn't clear to everybody, we sent the kids away to their grandparents, the, the Marco move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good move. Uh, yep. Uh, and this is the first time we had taken a vacation without our children since they were born. So it's first first vacation without wow. children. First, first vacation That's period that, that wasn't visiting family 
since our honeymoon because it's like we had our honeymoon which was just like a vacation that not to visit family but just the two of us and then after that pretty much every vacation we took was somewhere to go you know want visit one of our families to go somewhere with the family and then the kids were born and every vacation at the very least is with them so so you haven't had a vacation yeah well well this this is kind of this thing is supposed to be our 20th wedding anniversary thing our 20th wedding anniversary is this summer but we're like you know fitting it into the schedule and when they are the kids off of school and camp and all the other vacations this is the time when it fit in basically so um so yeah it was nice uh it was it was uh we're gonna say it was mostly relaxing but we did so much walking (laughs) it's like the most the most exercise and walking i've done in a long time like like I posted the uh, the pedometer plus plus graphs of what we did, but like on the on the second day we did like over thirty thousand steps and over fifteen miles, and the average was over ten thousand uh, steps for each day, or not not a ten thousand, sorry, over over ten miles for each day. Um, and my, I had my watch and I was counting my steps that way, but I had my phone in airplane, airplane mode. So I didn't have GPS, but my wife had her series two watch and her phone with an actual data plan on it. So hers is more accurate and her numbers were even bigger than mine. And we, we were all going to the same places. So we did a lot of walking and I'm an old man and the bottom of my feet hurt. <laughs> poor baby. <laughs> Sounds like a great vacation. <laughs> no, I just like, I, I love, first of all, it's, it's kind of mind blowing to me that you've taken zero real vacations you know ever uh and and it's it's I'm, I'm trying to picture like are you are you able to suspend and i say this in the most loving way possible as a friend are you able to suspend being you enough to enjoy a vacation <laughs> i am awesome at vacations i am better than most people at vacations i have no problem relaxing i'm better here's what i'm better at my idea of a vacation is relaxing and doing nothing People who want to have a vacation where it's like, we got to go, we have a plan, we got to see this, we got to see that. I'm the opposite of that. Hey, I buddy. feel like those people are not good at vacations where they're like, we have to do and see every possible thing there is to do and see. And we have a schedule and we got to wake up early and like, wake up early. That's not a vacation. Like, my vacation is where you do nothing in a beautiful place. That's my ideal vacation. Um, yeah, so this right. is a compromise vacation where we're going, we're traveling somewhere. I don't like to travel, but it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's not that long of a trip. Uh, and we're doing touristy things, but we're trying to do them at a relaxed pace. And I don't have to worry about kids complaining the whole time. So we can kind of do whatever the hell we want to do and be like, you know, like, a lot of it was like, we did all this walking because we'd like go do this thing. And then we'd just say like, well, what else is near here? And we'd, you know, find some place to eat near here and then go do that thing. And then we just like, it's like a random walk through London. It's just all different places and all big circles. We went to, went to the Regent Street Apple store. Uh, we went to like every park in London. We walked through at some point or another. Uh, and it's just nice being able to just say, what do you want to do next? I don't know. Like, I like not having a plan and just saying like, vaguely speaking, there's lots of interesting things we might want to go see, but let's just go wander to them. Um, my ideal vacations are the vacations we take actually with our ki- our kids and uh, my side of the family on Long Island, where you just sit on a beach all day for a week. That's my ideal vacation, but other people don't like that, right? Although Marco is coming around to it, but yeah, I have indeed come around to it. I think both of us have because Marco and I, during the run of this show, I think we're going tit for tat on who hated the beach more, and I think that the both of us have since been converted. Oh yeah, it basically happened like over the last like year and a half or so. <laughs> Yeah, I've always loved the beach, and a lot of people hate it, not just because they might hate the beach, but it's because, like, what are we even doing here? Who wants to sit in the sand? All Like, what are, what are we doing? I don't understand what we're doing. It's just like, you're just relaxing in a beautiful place. Even with the kids and with the family, the kids just go off and run and do the thing they do. It's a little bit more stress of me, like, making sure my children don't drown, you know, when we go to the ocean. Yeah, that's um, kind of important. But, 
yeah but but other than that uh that's that's my ideal being in a familiar place with good pizza and bagels and just having <laughs> no plan except to go to the beach every day and then come home and have a delicious dinner and then eat briar pies and just yeah um but we but we do, we've done that every year for many many years. So I'm not deprived of that. I get that all the time, right? And so this was more of a vacation of like a more in a more traditional sense. And then we went to you know Disney with the kids, which was the let's do a, a big family vacation with the kids and you know just sacrifice whatever our happiness may be. Although, you know we both love Disney too, right? So it wasn't that big a deal. But anyway, got to have the two kids. Got to make sure they're happy. This vacation is mostly for them. This one was for us, but mostly for my wife. Um, so yeah, we're not we're not big vacationers. But every once in a while, we, we try to do it. And I'm I'm sure this will be the thin end of the wedge of, like, let's go on different vacations. Like, this is building up to, like, when we're both <laughs> retired and our kids are gone and she's dragging me all over the globe. So, you know, I'll, I'm preparing for that. Was this your first international travel? I've been to Canada. Does that count? No. Not really, no. <laughs> I, no I've been to not just, not just, like, Canada, like, just over the border, but I've been to Newfoundland. Uh, I've been to the easternmost point in uh, North America. Still doesn't count. I've been out on a boat past the easternmost point in North America next to an iceberg. So that's pretty exotic. Eh. Eh. I, I do like um, in the chat room, uh, listener Seagrin uh, made an interesting distinction. Uh, he said, doing all kinds of stuff is traveling. Doing nothing is vacationing. I think that's a very, very good distinction. What you what you do and what we like to do now on the beach is vacation, where we just do nothing in a beautiful place, as you said. And doing all kinds of stuff in a different place, that's traveling, right? Traveling is like you want to see as much as you can see. And so you are waking up early and going and doing this and that all day. Um, so I, I kind of like that distinction. Well, you'd call Disneyland a vacation, though. People say, I'm going on a Disney vacation. And Disney is one of the main places where people are like, oh, got to wake up, got to get in this line, got to do this, got to see all these things. But it's they still call it a vacation, not traveling. Because where are you going? You're just in Orlando the whole time. Yeah, I so I have... I, I will say this, I have never been to Disney. It is not the kind of thing that I think I would enjoy. However, just from the way other people describe it, I would never describe that as a vacation. It's more fun than you think it is. I mean, you should you should go at some point when Adam is like the right age of like he's not going to be melting down constantly, but he's also not going to be too old for it. Like find find that age that is the right age for that and just take one family trip there. It is it is more interesting and more fun than you think it's going to be. I'm not going to say that you're going to think it's the most awesome place and you love it and you would do it all the time, but it's not as it's not as bad as you think. It sounds like more of an event, you know. It, it's like like you know, like we just finished um, our our kid's birthday was this past weekend, and so we we just finished like having a large party and arranging all the logistics and everything else. And like from from the way that I've heard friends, including both of you, talk about Disney vacations. It sounds like it's like hosting a party times a thousand, like all, all the stuff you have to like do and plan. No, it's, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of that. You don't have to worry about all that crap. Disney yep. takes care of like it's 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 like like your like Adam's party was for Adam. That's what Disney is trying to be for you. You're Adam in this scenario. And Disney is <laughs> you and Tiff. They exactly are right. taking care of all the crap and making sure your needs are met and just like you just show up and be like ah where's my cake where's my presents like that's disney that's that's what they're trying to do <laughs> yeah let me let me build on this so i have been begging to talk about well that's not fair i have wanted to talk about disney on this show for a long time but so disney is so intent on you having a good time and not having to worry about anything that if you stay 
on campus or in the parks, I forget the, the technical term that Disney uses for it, but if you stay at a hotel that Disney owns, that's on the Disney property. Uh, on property? I guess, yeah, I think it is on property. But anyway, so if you stay on property, if you book you know, with any amount of advance notice and you're flying into the Orlando airport, you can do this thing called Magical Express. And what happens is when you go to JFK or wherever you would go, Marco, you deposit your checked bags. They have a special Disney tag on them. When you arrive at the Orlando airport, you go to where the Magical Express buses are. You tell them what hotel you're staying at. You board a bus. You do not go to baggage claim. You go to your hotel. You check in. You presumably get your room unless it's silly early in the morning. You get your park tickets. And then you freshen up and go to the park. Your bags are still nowhere to be found. You go to the park. You do amazing things, have a tremendous time, have a lot of fun, especially you, Marco, because you would go at the bananas time of year when nobody else is there. Well, maybe not once he gets in school, but in terms of like jobby jobs, it's not a problem. He's in school. Yeah, I forgot about that. But anyway, (laughs) but the point being, you go and you have fun. And then when you return to your room, poof, like magic, there's your bags all collected all the way from the Orlando airport and placed conveniently in your room just for you. That's how serious they are about you not having to worry about stuff. Now, with that said... I would be worried the entire time whether my bag was actually going to be there when I got there. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't work for control freaks, but, but there's something for everybody in that, like, if that's not the experience you want to have, you don't have to. Like, just in general, like, everything about the park is set up to make your life easier. And they understand by now... What is annoying about being in a hot place with a kid who might be cranky and, you know, what what makes rides like everything about it is nice looking and fun and clean and cheery. And, you know, it's it's all artificial and it's all park. Like I'm not saying it's, you know, the beach is better. That's what I'm getting at. But uh, you you know, going in, this is what they're going to be trying to be doing. You think it's not going to work on me and it's just going to be miserable and it still just kind of works on you. So, so the the impression that I have gotten from listening to you guys and Merlin talk about Disney vacations, um, it the the degree of planning and required expertise about the way that these things should be done is that mostly just you guys being you guys and not the way it actually is. Uh, it's half and half. Yeah, it's kind of like there's a certain personality type who says that like. Like it's you're the type of person who doesn't want to be worrying about where your bag is. If you're also the type of person who wants to go to Disney and be like, I don't want to go to Disney and not get to do all the super duper special things that I want to do. Like then, yeah, you got to plan ahead for it and do all this stuff. But if you just go to Disney, you're like, whatever, I'll just do what. Let's just walk around and see something that's interesting that has a short line. And especially if your kid doesn't know enough to know, like, I want to go on X. And, you know, if they just like wandering around starry, I just like you, it'll work out fine. Uh, you are enough of a planner that I think you would do it a little bit ahead of time. Luckily, there is an entire industry of people whose only job is to plan your Disney vacation for you. That sounds awful. Oh, God, that would be so much fun. Are you kidding? It's another situation where you can throw throw a little bit of money at a person and they will just do everything for you and tell you where to go and what to do. And it's not that much money, especially once you see how much the bill for everything at Disney is. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money. Um, and it's another example of like, again, like, uh, you being the atom and just having these you know other people take care of everything for you everything in disney it's basically like being rich for poor people that's that's disney for you right because like for the rich people like everything ta- everyone takes care of your every need and you just wake up and people have your clothes ready for you and cars whisk you from place to place and private jets and helicopters and your food is served to you and just everything is you know you know what i mean no one's going to get that experience unless you have a, a tremendous amount of money like billions and billions of dollars right and also 
you know, are the type of person who can tolerate a living like that. Um, Disney is like, you don't have that much money, but if you have a little bit more money to, you know, if you have, if you have enough money to, to throw a, a, what seems like a lot towards us, we will try to give you the, you know, three degrees of magnitude less severe incarnation of that like if you're never going to go to a hotel where they treat you where they're like oh okay you know they're they're at your beck and call if you're never going to be able to afford that hotel you can still go to disney where reasonably nice people will try to be nice to you and like that's it's like well this is close as i'm going to get uh and and it's nice and everything here is nice and everyone here is trying to be nice to me i mean i think was on unreconcilable differences i had an episode about the sustainability of disneyland it was a long yeah. time ago. I did some podcast like that is the thing where you, where you see like can can people keep us up? How can employees actually be nice for that long a period of time? Can you actually get that many people to be nice to, to obnoxious American tourists for that long? Like, is it even is it sustainable? Like, surely the cracks will show. And I'm sure it is not now like it was in its heyday, but it is still nicer than you will be treated at most places that are not Disneyland for the same amount of money. Yeah, and and the thing of it is with regard to planning. I think John hit the nail on the head that it's kind of it depends on what kind of person you are. So I am super type A and I want to plan everything down to the second. And if I want to, I can do it. And and so I can get fast passes way in advance so I can figure out what rides I'm going to ride, which day at what time, which if you're not a planner to book your restaurant six months in advance. Yep. And I can book my restaurant six months in advance, literally six months in advance. And if you're not a planner, that sounds like work and it sounds yeah, miserable. It sounds terrible. And the, fact of the ma- and the fact of the matter is you don't have to do those things. If you're a triple A member, which we have been for forever, and it's like a hundred bucks a year or something like that, they have travel agents. That's the only travel agent I've ever used. For, wait, first of all, they're still triple A. Second of they're still travel agents yeah yeah absolutely and you can go to a triple a travel agent and they, and say to them look i've never been to disney <laughs> Where do you find them like behind like the record player like well, i guess maybe you yeah I, that, i've never had a problem finding a travel agent but anyway oh my god um, so i'm really being serious though and and you can go to a triple a agent and say look i've never been we've never been to disney this is these are the two things we want to do we generally like to take it easy and not have like that many booked activities can you just figure out a vague arrangement of things to do for us and they will make that happen i mean hell i would do it for you just because i think this stuff is fun but the point is you, <laughs> so just far like John, from fun oh my uh, god i mean what in, in the whatever it is that you like about vegas if you if you and tiff were to go to vegas by yourselves so you don't have the social aspect of your friends being there mm-hmm. Whatever it is you like about that, accepting the gambling and maybe the booze, because booze is less of a priority. <laughs> it's like that, but not as nice and without the sleaze and the smoke. It's with certainly without the sleaze, certainly without the smoke. I would debate whether or not it's as nice, but you're probably having much, much more humidity. <laughs> you know, that's true. Less heat, more humidity. Um, you, Marco, are probably doing a different kind of Vegas than I would do. And so it probably Disney probably would be less nice as compared to the Vegas I've done. It's considerably more nice, but in any case, it's it's a similar thing. And, and you, if you are willing to pony up the money for a Disney meal plan up front, you can eat, you know, th- two or three meals a day and not have to worry about what they cost. You don't have to worry about, you know, where you go because they all take the meal plan, basically. So it's it is a phenomenally fun time. And I 
genuinely cannot wait to take Declan there because seeing it through his eyes, I think would be worth the price of admission, which is tremendous. Yeah, that's that's the big thing about it. Like you would go there and like no matter how much you like it, you would it would be a vacation for Adam, which is why you're playing it based around what age you think he's most able to enjoy it to its fullest. And kids, kids love it. Kids love Disneyland, right? Even if your kid is not indoctrinated in the Disney World and doesn't know all the characters, just everything there is fun for kids of the, of the right age. And so you will enjoy the vacation because you will see how much he is enjoying himself, even if you, and then it will make you enjoy it more. Like, I think one of the most fun things we did on our vacation, if you'd asked me before to predict what that might be, I would not have called it the way I did, um, was we had dinner in the big Disney castle, you know, the big one you see in the, in the you know, it, the big Disney castle, you know, whatever yeah, it's called. The big, like, gray one that's in, like, the intro to the movies. Cinderella's castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little, you know, but it's the, the real life one, and it's a restaurant in there where you can have dinner. And, I don't remember if I th- I talked about this on Rectifs or here. Uh, I, did I have a giant thing where I complained about the food at Disney at some point? No, but now I want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot to complain. Let's right. go to that. So I'm saying, what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm getting at is I didn't enjoy it because of the food. I enjoyed it because it's not you know it's first of all eating inside the the actual real Disney castle is cool. I grew up my whole life seeing the Disney castle and, and pictures of it, and you know the the logo of the being in movies and all that stuff. Like and Walt Disney and the whole thing. Like so, it, the Disney castle has some meaning for me. Maybe it doesn't for you, but it, for me it does, right? Um, and I'm eating inside it, and that's cool. And second, that like many of the places where you can uh, book dinners, there they have like people playing the Disney characters coming around from table to table to you know say hi to your kids and stuff. And my son was a little old for it and a little shy. My daughter was super into it. She likes seeing, you know, Jasmine and Belle and, and Snow White. She knew who these characters. She'd seen the movies. There are people dressed as them. And she had a blast. She got to have a meal and got to pick off or, or pick the different foods that she wanted to have that sounded fancy to her. And the people come around to the table. And, you know, she, luckily I have one, at least one of my kids is not terrified and shy of, like, characters that come around to the table. And she had a blast. And I had fun because she had fun. And we were in the Disney Castle. And that was that was a good memory that I would not have uh, predicted. Um would it have been as much fun if we went there with no kids? Probably not. But we, after, put it this way, after we came back from the Disney vacation, my wife and I were talking about maybe we would go on a vacation without the kids there. Because in some oh, respects, so you have good. fun you have fun with the kids. But in other respects, you realize they're, you're limited in what you can do because the kids have, you know, they, they run down and eventually, you know, that adults are, are able to do things that may bore the kids or sustain like you know every every night we were there we were like in bed by the time fireworks went off which by the way we saw fireworks outside our balcony literally every single night and it never got old um they weren't our fireworks they were actually distant fireworks or whatever but uh but anyway if you're there and as adult you can go out at night and see the fireworks you stole someone else's fireworks is that like pirating the fireworks wow there's plenty of it's it's just it's just infringement because the the fireworks still exist over there even though we see them right (laughs) we're not actually (laughs) taking them um anyway we had a good time and we were even thinking about like we should come back ourselves because we could have we could have even more fun with just us without having to worry about like keeping the kids happy and they're making star wars land so maybe we will go back for that so wait wait, tell me about what made the food so crappy we don't have time for that we don't have time i don't want to you can leave it on the list if you want to see it but like oh i want to hear about this the accidental food (laughs) podcast returns yeah not not should be every after show I'm I'm ready. My body is ready. So we'll just ditch ATP entirely and turn it into the into AFP, which is by, you, both you, the Apple or the accidental files like picky food podcast PF. Picky Eaters podcast. No, but if it's AFP, it's the <laughs> Apple File System podcast <laughs> and Apple, Accidental Food podcast. 
Oh my god! Although Pep Talk is a good name for the podcast, if it's a picky eater podcast, we get uh, Pepto Bismol to sponsor <laughs> the Pep Boys. It's all it'll all work out. It's perfect. Ship it.